Everybody, welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. Ross, we have a very special episode today. This is one of the ones that I look forward to, what, about like four or five times a year now? Uh, you know? I'm pretty sure next year we're going to do 12. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for everybody, you probably know this is coming. This is our top eight uh, episode for Modern Horizons 2. So for people who maybe this is like the first time you've encountered one of these from us, or you just want to be a reminder of what's going on in the past... This is where Ross and I will uh, will count down our top eight cards for uh, what we think would be the top eight most impactful cards from MH2 here, from Modern Crisis 2. And we'll give kind of reasons why, right? Like there's, you know, different reasons why we think, you know, a certain card will be more impactful than others. You know, we'll kind of talk the way through that. We will also be highlighting our most overrated, our most underrated. And since this set is so big and impactful... Uh, you know, you and I both think that I think there's a chance that like 20 cards from this set could start, you know, showing up in constructed formats. Yeah, this is, a, this is of... a much tougher list to, to narrow down than Strixhaven per se, though that one was tough yeah. because it was you. I just didn't have eight. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we've, we've struggled with the last couple sets to have like eight. You know, I was like, man, I don't think my eight through four even might get, you know, they might show up at a sideboard or something somewhere. But like, you get what I'm saying. Like, I think this set's going to be very impactful. So we're going to have a couple of our close calls come up too. We're going to see how good that we do, you know, like how close that we get on uh, some of these. You know, we like to revisit these later, see what's up, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, you may agree with some of our rankings. You may not. We're going to tell you why we have some of those rankings because, you know, we talked about this before the show. It's like, you know, how do you rank a card? Like if this card, you know, spawns a whole new like archetype, right? Like it's the it's a four of in this deck, right? And it made this deck playable. But then, like, this card is a four of in, like, multiple other decks. Like, which one of those is better? And you're like, well, I think that's subjective, right? You yeah. You know, like, it's 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 up to the, you know, the reader or listener at home, you know, to figure it out. So, um, yeah. Uh, I, I think, did, did you want to talk about anything before we get into this? I don't know if you wanted to get anything off your chest. Um, yes. Did okay. you I, see any of the game last night? I didn't see any of the game last night. I was just honestly following you on Twitter because I, I would check the score every now and then because I was watching a game of my own. And it seemed like Donovan Mitchell was on a fucking mission last night. He was, as was basically everyone else on the team. I don't think they wanted to play another game. No, they did not. Yeah. Like, they scored 47 points in the first quarter. Is that a lot? Is that What, what does high score mean, Ross? Yeah. It is, in fact, the second highest score ever in a quarter of a playoff game. I'm so glad you knew that. I actually knew that, and it was kind of like leading you into that. I'm. Just, I love when I have like the segues, and I, I don't have them set up, and you just nail it. It's it's a oh god, it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. I and you know as as a you know diehard jazz fan, mm-hmm. this iteration of the team, right, sort it goes back really to Donovan Mitchell's rookie year. It, it's you can kind of include the year before, which is the first year they became good, but that was Rudy and Gordon Hayward. As the the two key cogs yeah. in the team, I remember those uh, years. But you know, Donovan Mitchell. This is his fourth season, so four years with with Donovan. This would uh, they won a playoff series, the one round one, his rookie year. It was against OKC when they had Paul George and Russell Westbrook and Carmelo Anthony, and everyone thought yeah. that was going to be like auto yeah, title contender. Team. Yeah, and they just team. weren't very good. <laughs> yeah, they were not good at all. <laughs> yeah, those uh, those three guys cannot coexist. Anyway, yeah. You know, like you know, went into that playoff series. OKC was the four seed. Utah was the five seed. They had the same record, but the OKC had the tiebreaker. And OKC won game one. Ever thought it was going to going to be an easy series for them. Utah won three straight games. Does this remind you of anything? Yeah. <laughs> After losing game one, you know, some of them pretty you know convincingly, and then were up big in game five. 
They were up by over 20, I believe, and and lost. And that that 20-point lead was in the third quarter, like midway through the third quarter. Yikes. So it looked like it was just going to be four straight blowouts, and OKC comes back and wins. And then they took a, like a 10-point lead in game six back in Utah, and Utah or an OKC came back and made it close down the stretch. Utah was able to keep the lead and and close it out in six. But and then and they lost the first round two years in a row. And then last year, you know, lose game one, win th- games two through four, were up in game five, and you know gave up the lead, lost game five, and this time you know gave, lost game six and seven as well. So they're. This the entire this era of the Jazz team had always struggled to just convincingly close out a series. This is actually the first time that the Utah Jazz will have won their round one series before their prospective opponent since 2007. So they're going to be well rested into the next. Yeah, round the first time they'll have a rest advantage in the second round. They have home and, court in the second round because they're the one seed. So I was really excited to, to just get this series over with. You know, the one negative was that Conley left with the same injury that he had that kept him out a lot towards the end of the season. So getting some rest here is going to be really helpful. Yes, and it's got to be big with him and with Donovan. You got to you got to know that Donovan probably needs a little bit of extra time too, coming off a, ma- a big injury himself. Yeah. So just altogether, it was awesome. Like I was yelling on my couch watching the game. It was it was a good day. So, All right, so I do have a question. Yeah. Thinking ahead for you guys, like thinking ahead, who do you want to win the Phoenix LA series? So the Lakers, you know, they're they're hurt right now. Is AD going to play in the next game? I haven't heard that report yet. I know he missed game five, and Phoenix is up 3-2 on the Lakers right now. I actually just want to see the Lakers lose because I have this weird thing. Like, I like LeBron. Like, as a human being, you know, everything else. Like, I like LeBron. I like to watch him lose, though, as well. So it's, like, really strange. You know what I mean? I respect him as a human. I love all the, like, philanthropic work and, like, you know, everything that he does outside the court. You know? I think he's great. I think he's good for the game. But I like to watch that guy lose. So <laughs> I kind of want the Lakers to lose. But what what does Utah want? Like, you know, is there a, is there a better matchup for you guys? Because, like, Phoenix is still really good, too. And so, Phoenix like, is... Phoenix is probably the toughest matchup just in terms of how they play versus how Utah plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Phoenix won all three games against Utah this season. Several of them were close. A couple involved injuries on you know Utah's right. side. Phoenix has been the healthiest team all year. Um, th- that said, I uh, and, and keep in mind this is the other side of the bracket, so that Utah's not playing the winner of that matchup. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like that's what I'm saying. Looking into the future. Like, yeah. Like, um, like, I, I you know, taking away my bias against the Lakers. Like, are you? I got a question here. I got to jump in. Yeah. Are you are you struggling with the enemy you know is in like you know what you're getting with Phoenix versus like playoff LeBron and hope and p- probably healthy AD? Yeah. Th- th- well, it's mainly like you know I'm not sure how healthy the Lakers would be in a Western Conference Final series. You know, I don't have any insight as to the medicals there, obviously, because right. I'm not, you know, in the Lakers organization. So, Pretty sure? Yeah. And I just really don't want, I, I wouldn't want to go up against that Lakers team with a healthy LeBron and a healthy AD. I don't actually think that's happening at this point, um, but it is a risk. And the other thing is Phoenix right now doesn't have a healthy Chris Paul. And that team is a lot easier to contain when you don't have to worry about both of those guys in their backcourt. 
uh, and easier to contain, easier to score on. I think Chris Paul is an underrated defender, um, though that that's less of an impact. And I think ever, ever when most casual fans talk about the matchup issues that Utah has against Phoenix, they always just talk about how Rudy Gobert can't defend good mid-range shooters, which is just kind of nonsense because the Jazz defense is designed to let you shoot in the mid-range. So it's not like Rudy Gobert's fault. It's literally just the scheme that the Jazz it's play. The system. Yeah. And if you look at the games that we played against Phoenix, it wasn't their offense that like dominated Utah's defense. It was Phoenix's defense. Like that, that was a defensive matchup in the, in the regular season. Yeah, and, I wouldn't have thought of that, you know. Yeah, about these it, two teams. it's it's their length. It's the fact that they have a really long athletic five who can effectively guard the pick and roll, who, who can effectively guard the pick and roll two on two. So they, they don't need to bring that much help from the perimeter to stop, uh, you know, Gobert at the rim and stop the ball handler out of the pick and roll. And that really prevents uh, Utah's offensive engine from running. And when you grind that engine to a halt, you force them into playing a lot of isolation basketball. And really the only player on the Jazz team that is successful in isolation is Donovan. That's why the game towards the end of the regular season that they played without Donovan, it was just a blowout for Phoenix. Like Utah just couldn't score. So that series offensively for Utah, they're going to rely really heavily on Donovan to just beat his man off the dribble and force help defense so that either, you know, either he can get open shots or he can force the help, make the read, pass to the open man, and they can get the blender going. So that's the that's the the main worry. But that said, at mo- at times in those games, you know Utah was just not just as dominant on defense. So I think without Chris Paul, it would be a lot easier to really shut them down. And then when you add Donovan Mitchell back to the equation, I would like our chances. So the 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 decision for me is just one of health. Like I would rather play whichever team is least healthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And, and yeah. you know, all things equal, I would rather play Phoenix. So, yeah. that, the, you know, that, that's where I am. And so it's just sort of impossible to project at this point. Uh, and, and I just don't know. I, I would say that it's more likely Chris Paul becomes healthy than the Laker, than AD and LeBron. Uh, so maybe I would actually lean LA, but I always just feel uneasy saying that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. All right. Speaking of projections, let's project our you know, what we think is going to happen out of MH2. Let's talk about our top eight cards. And uh, if you want, I'll just go ahead and get started. I'll go and uh, fire off my number eight on my list here. Do it. All right. So this one, um, this is kind of like a pet card myself. Like, I like this card. I like the way it looks. Uh, You know, I don't mean necessarily just the art. I I like everything about this card. And this is one of the ones that it's probably one of the higher risk picks on my top eight, but I think that this one could be really good and find a home in some spots and be like a two of as like a finisher in a deck and be really good. And this card is Merktide Regent. This is the new big blue dragon mythic from this set. And for everybody at home that doesn't know what this card does, this is five blue blue for a three, three flyer. More importantly, it has Delve. And, you know, as we've seen in the past, Cards of Delve are generally broken, especially in blue. Uh, a little bit more uh, text here. It's got flying. Um, it enters the battlefield with a plus and plus one counter on it for each instant and sorcery you exiled uh, with that Delve. And then whenever an instant or sorcery card leaves your graveyard, you can put another plus and plus counter region. If this didn't have that first line where it gets bigger off of the Delving, 
Um, I don't think this card would be like good or like we just died to lightning bolt right away. You know, I would uh, not this this wouldn't be my thing. But I think in um, if if you're going to make either like a tempo blue deck in this format or just like some kind of blue deck that needs some kind of finisher, this is one of the cards I want to lean into because it's just going to generally cost blue blue and be very good from the point. It's going to generally be what like a five five a six six flyer for blue blue. And then the possibility with the possibility of getting bigger, you know, if you have any other kind of delve card, which kind of turns your delve cards into like mini fireballs. This also makes the card Thought Scour great, which you know me, it doesn't take much of an excuse for me to want to play the card Thought Scour. I love that card yeah. to death. You know, t- two um, fetches and a Thought Scour, and you're casting right. this on on turn two. Yeah, exactly. Like super great. Like fetches are amazing with this card. Um, it, it you know, it's Tomb Stalker, but blue. Like you don't have to play black for the card, right? And I just think this card could be very good in the right shells. And that's where I think is it it that's where that's what's holding the card up, right? Like if a Delver deck is good, right? Like and I don't mean necessarily a deck with Delver in it, but like that tempo uh deck or even maybe even like a mid-rangey control type deck that just wants this as a finisher, I see this card um going into those kind of decks and mostly because a lot of the threats in the like the Delver deck and stuff that are good in this format or would be good in this format just kind of die all like all to the normal removal it's played everywhere like to bolt lava dart and all that other stuff and this is something that you can play as like that big creature that gets around most of the of the removal that's played a lot in the set which is i mean in this in this in this format in modern which is you know fatal push uh lightning bolt you know lava dart and that kind of stuff also in the right deck i could i could see this also possibly getting played in legacy where you're just like yeah make a giant freaking flyer you know, you know, people did used to play Tomb Stalker. That's sort of in the the pre Gurmag uh, Angler range. That, that's where the second you know colored mana uh, really gets you. In Legacy, you really don't want to spend the second mana, but it is gigantic. And like the, the the thing with me here is when I think about this in Legacy, right? Like I don't necessarily think it has like that big of a home right now because the blue red Delver deck already has like a Delve threat, and that one might be better. It just matters how the format plays. That I haven't played the format a ton. But when I think about the format and I think about if I was the Blue Red Delver deck, like a lot of times in, in the Delver matchups, they play out like the Jund mirror where like, you know, you just trade a resource, trade a resource, trade a resource. And then the person who has like the last threat left over or the one that has a threat that stays in play the longest generally wins, right? And so in the matchups in, in history, it was like whoever had the Gurmag Angler stick around, right? Whoever had the Termogoyf that was big enough to stick around or the Hooting Mandrills kind of thing, right? And this can this can get bigger and outclass all of those cards, and pretty damn easily too, right? Because your deck is just literally uh, ponders, brainstorms, and like you know force of wills and stuff. So like you're getting a lot of value off the card. Plus it's also blue, so it pitches the force of will. So like this is a Gurmag Angler or a Tomb Stalker or like a Termogoyf. You know you can't really play them on turn two very often, but like it's it's that card like that fills that role that can be pitched to force of will. Which I think is something that you can like not look like overlook. So, yeah, no, I'm 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 with you in particular on the point about removal. You know, when it comes to playing one mana removal, the you know modern really really did change when we got a critical mass of it when Fatal Push joined next to Path to Exile and Lightning Bolt, and so many different you know three color combinations of decks got access to five, six, seven, eight one-mana removal spells that are very wide-ranging. And that puts a lot of pressure on the threats that 
you play because every time you're trading your two-mana threat for their one-mana removal spell, you're falling behind. And that's you know that was one of the things that's made Tarmogoyf a lot worse in modern. It's made Dark Confidant almost unplayable. You know, exactly, yeah. all, all, all these two-mana threats that die to all the one-mana removal and don't generate immediate value suddenly, you know, go way down in their stock. And it seems to me in this set that, you know, rather than allow modern to degenerate and just sort of force everyone to play nothing but one-mana threats and one-mana removal so that you're never disadvantaging yourself in these trades, they're trying to print some two-mana threats that can break the stranglehold that the one-mana removal spells have on the metagame because they're two-mana threats that dodge Fatal Push. They're big enough mm-hmm. to also dodge Lightning Bolt. Yeah, nothing dodges Path to Exile, but when they path your threat on turn two, now you're getting a lot of value out of that extra land, and you're pretty yeah. happy about it. Yeah. So, you know, Merktide Regent is one of several cards in this set, you know, Sign of Draco being another one, that fit this mold. And I'm really happy to see that because that is a way to get players to stop putting as much one-mana removal in their deck and stop that degenerative process in the metagame where the format just becomes about playing as many cheap spells as you possibly can. Uh, and, you know, it gives it gives the metagame a natural check on those because if it gets too degenerate, then you can just play the threats that then nobody can answer. And I think Merktide Regent is one of the best ones in this vein because it's so flexible, it has the evasion, it is gigantic, you know, Todd and I have each played this card in exactly one deck on Versus this week, and we have both cast it as an 8-8. Yeah. So yeah. so that's, th- that's three games. So in six games, it's been cast as an 8-8 twice. And I only had two copies in my deck. So, you know, call it, you know, it's three games. So, you know, there's a lot of variance there. But it was not that hard, you know, to, to cast this card. But not, neither of us was trying particularly, you know, hard to enable it either. Yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to build your deck around it. Like yeah, the decks, you know, like Todd was playing Thought Scour, this. sure. Like, call yeah. that, you know, enabling Thought Scour is a good card. I was playing Adventure Creatures, which are bad with this. You know, they're not spells to exile to make it bigger. They also don't go to the graveyard, but just some fetch lands and counter spells and naturally playing magic, you know, Katana discard or, or what have you, just you know, made it easy. And we we're casting it as a 5-5 pretty easily and bigger. And that's that's really, really nice, um, you know, because you want it to be bigger than, you know, the Tarmogoyfs and other su- substantial creatures your opponents are playing. I've, I, I, I was, uh, like, a little bit lukewarm on this card when it first came out, but I've, I've grown on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've been impressed you. with it in, in a small sample size. So sure. I, I, I would not be too worried about putting that in your 8 spot. Yeah. All right. What is your number 8 card? My 8 is one of my favorite cards in the set. And I, I I don't think it will get to the level of Fatal Push and Lightning Bolt, but honestly, with how uh, how much Path to Exile stock has dropped recently, I think this card could reach Path to Exile stature. Ooh, I think I That's how high on it I am, and that is Suspend. Yeah, so it's a one blue mana instant, and you exile target creature and put two time counters on it, and if it didn't have Suspend, it gains Suspend. I, uh, I believe that's the, the only text on it. Yes, I'm looking right at it right now. Yes, yeah. that's it. Um, it. It explains the spin to people uh, yeah, yeah. on the card if you because yeah, you know, a lot of reminder been around. Text. Yeah. So uh, you know, this is a card that I think a lot, a lot of players get a little bit wary when they see a removal spell that doesn't permanently deal with the creature, right? Because you want to you know sort of set it and forget it and and have the threat dealt with and, and move on. Yeah, this one is only going to answer the creature for two turns, but. In the context of modern, 
that can often be enough. You know, yeah. if you stop your burn opponent's goblin guide for two turns, that gives you time to land a Tarmogoy for a bigger creature. And, you know, two turns later, that goblin guide might just not do anything. You might have just gained four life off of a one blue mana spell, which is really good at that matchup. Yeah, yeah also true. Um, you know, so, you know, the using it in the early game, you're not giving your opponent any additional value. You are losing the card. So it, it, it oftentimes is card disadvantage, but... You know, if you if you're a deck that can blank the bat that can control the battlefield, those early creatures that you're using suspend on are no longer going to be relevant. You know, two turns from now are, are going to be much less relevant. So there's a way to you know effectively negate that card a couple turns later. Then you're then you've basically traded one for one. You know, uh, but you know that's not all this card does. This is one of those subtle cards that has a lot of different modes to it that people don't realize. I think you're going to see, you know, suspend be used on your own creatures a lot to save them from removal, uh, and, and that's really nice. It can get used on creatures with enters the battlefield abilities. You know, when you play a turn one, you, you can now, even if you're not a white deck, you can turn one grief and suspend it with the trigger on the stack and get another card a couple turns later. That's a nice play with all of these incarnations. It works really well with Teferi Time Raveler. Now you get to suspend their creature, and when they if it if you have to ferry it on the battlefield when it goes to be cast and unsuspend, they can't cast it in their upkeep, and so it just stays exiled, uh, and you've just effectively gotten a swords to plowshares that didn't give them any life. That's really nice as well, uh, and the the card I think it goes really really well with is Urza Lord High Artificer. Okay. Suspend yeah. is a great card to cast. You know, even if you've traded a bunch of resources and don't have much on the battlefield or don't have anything other than lands, you cast your Urza on turn four. Now you've got a suspend to either use on an opposing creature to buy yourself time for Urza to take over. Because Urza is the kind of card that snowballs and gives you complete control of the battlefield and of the game if it sticks around long enough. But sometimes you're under too much pressure and it, you know, takes a lot of resources for Urza to get going with that temporal aperture ability. Suspend is a card that can very cheaply buy you the time to establish control of the battlefield with Urza, and then you don't care that the creature is coming back. You know, you, you have everything uh, everything checked. It's also a card that can protect the Urza. You know, if you have an artifact in play, then they can't even respond to the ETB trigger. If they're tapped out and you resolve the Urza, then the construct can, you know, uh, suspend the Urza, and you're going to get another construct when it comes back, you know, after the two turns. So I think those two cards work incredibly well together. I think that you know it's. Uh, I think a lot of cards in this set really help Urza uh, and Suspend is one of them. But just so many little synergies with cards that are already good and seeing plenty of play in modern, along with being an efficient early re you know removal spell for you know Archmage's Charm decks that maybe doesn't cost you a lot of life, so you're not having to fetch for that Steam Vents or that Watery Grave early. You can just get Basic Island a lot of the time. You know, conserve your life total. Use suspend to answer the creature. It's very wide ranging. You know, I think of of control decks that are you know splashing and playing maybe two path exiles just so they have that really uh, you know diverse top end uh, removal spell. Suspend might just be better because it's a much better early game card against monastery so spear soul scar mage and, and whatnot. Uh, but I I just think the card's value as a removal spell is better than it reads, and then it does so many other little things that it's going to be really, really good at one mana. I also just love the design as a blue removal spell. I, I think that, you know, there's... What WotC has gotten better at, I, I think they're just overall understanding of magic is better. 
I think it, you know uh, a lot of players have an understanding of magic that is lacking. You know, there are fundamental aspects of magic that I don't think should be color pied into certain segments, right? Card advantage is, is the primary one. The reason blue was so good in the early days is that they just got all the good card advantage cards, and card advantage was king uh, for, for some other reasons. But card advantage is a fundamental aspect of magic. And so that should be something available to every color, but it should be available in ways that make sense in that color. And we've seen red start to get different sources of card advantage. We've seen greens start to get different sources. And now we're finally seeing white get a little bit more of that. Uh, you know, you see it in, in black too, but it's always in ways that make sense in those colors. So the color pie is still there, but no color is being denied these fundamental aspects of, of magic. And removal is also one of them. Like no color should just not have removal, but you should have removal that is appropriate for that color. Right. Right. Yeah, and even something like Feed the Swarm, where like you know, we don't need to be hardlining and say black can't remove enchantments, but that is a good black way to deal with an mm-hmm. enchantment. Feed the Swarm, yeah. it, it's it fits black's color pie. Uh, you know, I think this is a great one mana removal spell for blue that really fits the color pie. And honestly, like in a few years, I expect there to be a really sort of souped up kind of prey upon in green that really you know helps green have a good one mana removal spell too. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right, so we're going to move on to mine number seven. And uh, this is a card, I think this is another, uh, not like high risk card, but high variance card. I think the ceiling of this card is obscenely high, but the floor could be pretty low, depending on if it gets played or not. And this is Unmarked Grave. This is one in a black for a sorcery. This says, search your library for a non-legendary card, put the card into your graveyard, then shuffle. Um, Entomb is banned in a lot of formats, and rightfully so. The card is very, very good. Um, it's a very good card in a very good deck in Legacy. Like, it's practically, you know, one of the main cards that makes that deck go, right? If a reanimator-like strategy or some combo deck that involves the graveyard becomes, you know, really good, I think this is a card that's going to shine. Um, you know, we don't have it anymore, but I think of cards like Bridge from Below and stuff in the past that, like, you know, you could have had, like, you know, a copy or two of this card in your deck to put it in your graveyard just to make sure that you always have your combo pieces, et cetera, et cetera. Or you, like, go get your, you know, um, one of your zombies that goes into your graveyard. You know, one one of your combo pieces that, that goes in there somewhere. Not to mention, you know, being able to go get big, dumb idiots to kind of, you know, do the reanimator thing. Like, you know, we saw a card in this set, um, our kind of Cruelty, get printed. You know, a big, dumb idiot, as I call it, that... Just does so many things, right? Like I saw you play the, the deck with it built around this card in Owen versus Live it, with our kind of cruelty, and it seemed really powerful whenever you did it. I mean, like yeah, you lost your games, but it seemed like something really powerful, right? Like it seemed like something was there. You know, you know when you do something and you're like, this is obviously good. You know, I don't know if it's it's right, if it's correct, if it's like what you should be doing here, but I think that the ceiling on this card is really high. It's a very scary card. I think this is one of the scarier cards printed in this set. And I think this is one of the more likely cards in the set to be banned if something ever gets, you know, absurd. Which, not having faithless looting and stuff like that in the format helps out a lot because you just don't have the redundancy of, like, of the legacy deck, you know, that has, like, looting, like, Entomb, uh, Reanimate, you know, like, oh, like, just, you know, multiple copies of everything that it wants to do. But we're getting closer to it, right? You know, when I see the card, you know, Grief get printed along with this, you know, this is this this harkens to a lot of cards that are really good in Legacy, and, and you know this card is very good and very similar to a lot of those cards. So I've got this one on my list, and like I think this is the one of the ones where like people be like, yeah, I missed, or 
man, I had that probably too low on my list, honestly, or too yeah. high, however you want to look at it. I agree that the effect is very powerful. So, you know, projecting out into the future, if this card was banned two years from now, I wouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, you'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. That tracks. Yeah. yeah. What worries me about it is I think Watsi is very cognizant of the power of this effect. And, you know, one isn't and isn't going to print the tools necessary to make it fast enough to where it can consistently outpace the hate. You know, there's every deck in modern is cognizant that they need to probably interact with the graveyard in some capacity, whether it's with sideboard cards, specific main deck cards. There's just so many little interactions with the graveyard, so much access to it uh, with many cards in the format that interacting with the graveyard is at a premium. And, you know, this is a card that just sort of goes all in in that regard. So usually when I'm looking at a deck that is playing into a lot of hate, I want to ha- be compensated in some way, you know, with you know, maybe a deck that can be incredibly fast. Uh, so I'm very likely to win games where my opponent doesn't have hate or, or you know, uh, or very, um, you know, or likely to win games before they can deploy their hate. Uh, and Unmarked Grave and Persist, which obviously go very well together, you know, that's a that's a turn four combo if you're trying to do it all in one turn. You can obviously set it up over two turns. You can also use Priest of Felrights in Modern Horizons to, to get your creature back on turn three. But we also have a lot of really, we have a lot of good ways to even interact with the creatures that you're getting back. And because you're not able to get Gristlebrand, which is the card that says, okay, you answered my Gristlebrand, but I don't care because I just drew seven more cards and I'm just going to do the same thing again. I think that becomes a viable way to stop these kind of reanimator strategies is with just good removal. Uh, The card that actually scares me the most with it, right now at least, is Protean Hulk. That turn two unmarked grave, turn three footsteps of the Goryeo kill you. There's plenty of ways to kill with a, with a single Protean Hulk trigger, uh, so that would be the that's the thing at this point that I'm most scared about unmarked grave enabling. Uh, but I would have to see a list and see how resilient it is. Um, and, and actually, I'll, I'll add another thing too. I, I'm also a little scared of a deck that potentially is just sort of a control deck that eventually sets up persist plus. Um, that's where I was kind of thinking. Plus too, Unmarked yeah. Grave, right? Yeah. You know, you play your Archon of Cruelties, which is a great value creature, and you can hard cast them if you draw them naturally, right? If you're just sort of a demure control deck. You know, playing a seven mana card is not at all out of the realm of possibility uh, or even probability. And, it, you know, sometimes you just turn three them when you see the coast is clear. Or you know you're playing in a matchup where the coast is going to be clear. And sometimes you sit there and interact for three or four turns, and then you just sort of, you know, splinter twin them, essentially. So there are definitely some things that uh, you know you can make work because especially in that control shell you can just sort of board out a lot of the graveyard cards bring in a couple planeswalkers and have your archons be hard castable and then your opponent has a bunch of graveyard hate while you're trying to play an attrition game uh, and you you can get them with that kind of false tempo so uh, while I don't think just the obvious straight up reanimator decks are going to be particularly good this car this effect is powerful enough that it can be you know, you can fit it into strategies that work around yeah. that graveyard hate, and that's what makes it dangerous. So, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. This is a card that could fall flat. Like, I agree that it's a high variance card, but um, definitely one, to, definitely one to watch out for. Mm-hmm. All right, you're number seven. 
My number seven is a card that should be familiar to everyone, uh, given that it is a an existing card that is being put into modern for the first time, and that is Shardless Agent. Uh, you know, so one blue green two two with Cascade artifact creature, and I've got to say, I didn't expect for me to put this on this list, but I'm kind of riding high from today's versus episode. When I played, it was an aspiring spike brew that I just lifted and played on versus. I gave if him credit. Don't worry. Card, if anyone breaks that card, it's going to be him. It's yeah. Him or like Dab Nassif. And I wasn't sure how well this deck was going to play out. It was it was a teamer cascade deck, but it was it was a sort of fair cascade deck. You know, it wasn't playing restore balance. It wasn't just winning the game when it, when you cast it. it. It felt a lot like the you know the cascade Tybalt decks, right? Okay. Uh, and but yeah. the card that you were cascading to every time was crashing footfalls. So the deck was playing. It was teamer, th- four violent outburst, four shardless agent. Four crashing footfalls, no cards with mana value less than three, but you still have a lot of early interaction. The deck had force and negation. It had subtlety, the blue, uh, you know, pitch creature. It had fire ice, a cheap removal spell. I actually just used it to tap one of Todd's lands. Just to kind of time walk. Like yeah. I, yeah, like I, 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 I only had two lands. I needed a third. I had the cascade spell. I was on the play, and I just tapped his land on his upkeep, drew into my land. You know, forced forced his discard spell untapped and, and Shardless Agent did into ten power, uh, and it was it was kind of disgusting. Like he had, he literally had Inquisition of Kozilek on turns one, two, and three, and I made fourteen power through that. Is that good? On t- on like turn four or whatever, and they, like the game is over. Uh, but and that's not. And then on top of that, you had the adventure creatures. So we were playing Bone Crusher Giant and. Right. Brazen Borrower, so a ton of two, really a ton good. of two mana interaction, a little bit of zero mana interaction. So this was a deck that you know had ways to you know get to turn three, and then once you do, you just make ten power and maybe eight with violent outburst, and you can keep doing that. You know, four crashing footfalls, eight cascade spells. You know, so I I had a, a game where I suspended footfalls on one and then cast it off cascade on turns three and four, so it was three, four, and five, just crashing footfalls, crashing footfalls, crashing footfalls, and I interacted oh, with. I, and I had two force negations in this game too, um, so the the deck you know it's not degenerate in the way that like once you do your thing the game ended, but what I was doing at every turn felt really really powerful, and that's the kind of stuff that Charles Agent enables. You know, it's a blue card, so it pitches to other good. Like it's you know I think a lot of the time you would struggle building this kind of deck and still playing with force negation and subtlety. So Charles Agent being a blue card is really important. That's a good uh, point. You know, just the extra 2-2 two, two of value, also important. This is a deck that, you know, is 2 for winning itself a lot, and then having a couple big plays to catch back up. And so every little bit of value on top of the Crashing Footfalls helps. You know, Violent Outburst is rarely getting you something. Same with, like, Ardent Plea, uh, similar other Cascade cards. I'm sure they're, the Blue Living End deck is going to love playing with Shardless Agent instead of some other Cascade card. Uh, so I, I think there's an obvious home for it there. Uh, I've seen people try to port the old Shardless Bug deck from Legacy into Modern because it's basically legal outside of, you know, Wasteland Days, Force of Will, Brainstorm. But you can play Jace, you know, you, you, to set it up. You can just randomly hit Ancestral. Uh, you know, Shardless Agent is just far and away the best Cascade cards and card, and those cards are really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. You're selling me on it, uh, listening to you talk about it more. Um, like, I don't... I don't have this in my top eight. And for a while I struggled with it and had it as my most overrated card. And that's mostly because like, you know, what I've been seeing on Twitter, like people posting deck lists and stuff. I'm just like, ew. Like every time I look at one of those decks, I'm like, 
This deck just, like, you know, it would be the typical, like, deck you'd think. It'd have, like, Thoughtseize, Inquisition, Termagoyf, and, like, all this. It's just Jund, right? It's just yeah. blue Jund with that I card. I don't want my Shardless Agent to be a marginal two-for-one. Yeah, like, I, that ain't it. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't get me excited. Like, yeah, it I've heard people talk about playing this in humans because it's a human, and I'm just like, no. I'd rather just play a more impactful card. Like, r- random card from my deck plus a 2-2 or, like, random two-drop from my deck plus a 2-2 is probably worse than some three-drop I can play, right? I can see myself playing it and casting it on three and then revealing Aether Vial and wanting to flip the goddamn table. You know? Like, just just being so mad. You know, like, at the... Or hitting Champion to Perish with nothing else to do. Like, you yeah. run out of gas, you know, or whatever. But even... And so the... Uh, but there's so many good car, like good things to cascade into these days like if you just build your deck appropriately and right, now there's right. so many more options for you know cheap removal that or cheap interaction that has mana value three or more so it doesn't mess up your cascades yeah and so like that's the that's the biggest thing for like, me right is we, like we know how cascade works this is how you break it yeah it, we, we've done this before we've broke this before continue to do it and like that's why originally i had it as my most overrated card is because like Everyone was so excited about it, but the decks that I kept seeing people talk about and the ways I saw people playing it, I'm like, this this isn't that good. Like, it's it's really not. Like, you're going through a lot of hoops to, like, make your card mediocre. You know, like, you make your card okay and, like, just play a better deck. Like, just kill your opponent. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. Instead of, like, getting incremental value as the game goes people on. People love right? to dirtle. Yeah, people really loved Dirtle, and that's why I really liked just playing card on them in turn three and being like, <laughs> exile that thing. You know, like, yeah, whatever, good luck. Yeah. You know, it's, it, like, literally, I made I made a living in Modern for a long time just being like, please be Dirtling, please be Dirtling, but like, please, you know, kind of thing. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm not as high on this card as most people, but, like, hearing you talk about, like, this kind of build gets me more excited for the yeah. card. There are some busted everyone, things you can do with it. Everyone at home was the last thing I'm going to say about this card. If you're playing Shardless Agent, don't play fair. Like, just don't be playing fair with this card. Yeah. All right. So that was, like, your number seven, right? So we're on to my number six. My number six, uh, another card that I think has a really high ceiling. And honestly, I this isn't the kind of card for me. Like, I think about the, you know, type of magic that I play in the cards and decks that I play. But I do think that this card is going to be big. And I've almost kind of forgot this card was in the set because it was one of the very first cards that we saw from this set. And this is Urza's Saga. And for people at home that don't know what Urza Saga is, it's an enchantment land. It's also a saga. Uh, its first uh, chapter is Urza Saga gains tap this, add a colorless, you know, the little colorless mana, the Eldrazi mana, whatever you want to call it. The second chapter is uh, this gains uh, two mana, tap it, create a zero zero colorless contract artifact creature token with this creature gets plus and plus one for each other artifact you control. So it makes a construct, as, as you know, a lot of people know that kind of phrase. And then the third one says, search your library for an artifact card with mana cost zero or one. Now, remember, it's an artifact card with mana cost, not mana value. Mana cost zero or one. That's relevant. And put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. One of the reasons I specifically have this high. Okay, there's two reasons, honestly. One, think about the history of modern over the last five or six years. There's always been some kind of artifact deck somewhere in there, right? Like if they can Urza, were uh lantern like all those kinds of things right and we've had to ban some cards out of them or make decks that could beat them more readily to make them better to make them not you know the best decks going around this is another card and another plaything for those decks right this just kind of inserts itself in those decks and is good so like that that right there 
you know, ups the worth of a card in this set because it's already pretty playable. The other point for me, and uh, I wish I still had this conversation. Somebody was talking to me about this and they, they did the math on it and they sent it to me. There's a very good chance that this card is busted in Amulet. And I mean busted. Um, someone did the math and it actually increased your odds of turn three Titan and killing them. Uh, I think on turn three or whatever, because like, I think it increased you by like, I think it was like 10 to 12% of having an amulet at all times. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know, you know, or the, like naturally... the double amulet too. Like how much yeah. are you increasing those draws? Yeah. Cause when you double amulet, they're just dead. Most yeah. Of the time, du- right? Double yeah. amulet is easy mode. Yeah. Easy mode. Right. And so you're, you're looking at a deck that for a while was like, you know, might've been the best deck in modern, right? Uh, it was very hard to play against, you know, it was hard to, to, to hate correctly. And like, the, the best players, when they were really good with it, always found all the lines, right? And it was, like, really creative, a really difficult deck to play with. The kind of deck that I would never personally touch, right? I've taken so many draws off that deck, you know, like, in between rounds. I'd walk up to one of the Canadian players or whatever and be like, hey, let me see your deck. And I would, like, take draws. And I'm like, I don't even know what a mulligan looks like. More or less a functional <laughs> hand. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, and I would just be like, I don't know. Like, I just go cross-eyed. It was like, um, like, here's a good example. Like, it's exactly how I felt. I remember uh, when Dylan Hand joined our team for PCW, right? Like, he always played, like, Eldrazi Stompy in Legacy, right? And he was always a Legacy seat for his team. And I remember, like, one time he's, like, playing some pickup games, and I walk up, and I just grab his deck when his game's over. He's like, what are you doing? And I just open my deck box, and I just put Delver down the table. I'm like, I want to watch you play this deck. And so he's, like, playing it, and then, like, turn two or three or whatever, he cast Brainstorm. And I ask him, I was like, have you ever cast Brainstorm before? And he's like, no. And I watched him cast Brainstorm, draw the three cards, and he kept them separate for a minute. I'm like, dude, it's not Ponder. They go into your hand. And he picks up, like, you know, all the seven or eight cards. And you just watch his brain break. You know what I mean? You watch him just, like, it's like a deer in the headlights. Like, you just freeze. And you're like, uh. And I watched the head. He's like, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't know, man. You figure it out. And, like, I knew already. You know, I'm like, I do this, this, or whatever. But, like, I've done this a million times. And, like, watching someone go through it the first time, and I was like, I probably looked and felt dumber doing my, you know, first couple times through Amulet, and I probably still do, right? And so this is a big brain card that goes over my head. I need someone else to show me what to do with it to really go crazy, but I think the ceiling on this card is very high. I think this card is going to be very good. I very much agree. I think this card is, it, it you know, the applications in Amulet are there as far as sort of what can we do with that third chapter to be really degenerate? You know, what one mana and zero mana artifacts are there? And Amulet is definitely one of them. But I also think this card has potential just as a value card, as a toolbox card. You know, you can make multiple constructs with it. You can use it to generate extra mana by finding things like Mox Amber. Because, you know, the, the trigger happens on your main phase. So with that third trigger on the stack, you can tap the land for mana and then find some one, zero or one mana card that generates extra mana and, you, you know, sort of push yourself uh, above there and ramp a little bit. There, it just, It's a flexible card. It's a powerful in all of its different applications. So I expect it to show up in a wide range of decks and be successful in a wide range of decks. It's another card that I think helps out Urza or High Artificer as I mentioned earlier. So, so much going on with this card. Um, and d- did you see what it initially was? It initially uh, was chapter one and two tapped for colorless. Chapter three tapped for three colorless. Right, right. It was, yeah, that's what I, now I saw that. Yeah, and that's, that's I think, way too broken or whatever. Yeah. It like, does too many degenerate things. Um, that, that one was also broken with Primeval Titan. Yeah, you just turned three Titans all day. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, thinking about the third chapter, there's a lot of things you can do with this. Like, you can put the third chapter... When the third chapter goes on the stack, do you sacrifice it? 
Yeah, I roll as after the third chapter resolves. Yeah. Okay. As so you, as the last part of its resolving. Right. So you can't. Can you put the trigger on the stack? Tap a secure tribe scout. Put a bounce land into play and return this to your hand. Yes. Like that sounds great. And then, like you said, like even when you're not doing the quote unquote broken things, the third chapter, like just getting a cage. Yeah. You know, getting like soul getting, guide lantern. Getting soul guide like. like yeah, there's there's Pithing all kinds of hate for cards. something. Yeah, getting needle, just yeah. getting just brainstone so you can draw an extra yeah. card with your lands. Like, like it does all of these things if that's what you need it to do. Yeah, I mean, like think about how many trinket mages we've seen get cast out of you know amulet, and like maybe you don't even need to play that card anymore. We'll see. You know, maybe they they, they still you know are in the the thing for that because I don't know how to build their land base or whatever. But anyway, we don't need to you know like keep going deeper and deeper in this card because I think I think it's very good. I think we can both agree on that. What is your number six card? My number six is our first repeat of the day, and that is Merktide Regent. You had it at eight, I had it at six. Uh, as I said earlier, I've, I've rose on this card off of, you know, a, a small sample size of things, but I just didn't, I wasn't sure how easy it was going to be to be better than Tombstalker or bigger than Tombstalker and how much, how much value there was going to be in that. And at this point, I think the card is very just difficult to answer in modern, so being bigger is valuable. Uh, also the, you know, I think being blue is just better. Yes, than being and also yeah. just being like being blue is so much. Yeah, how much? I knew that was going to be an improvement, but again, like how much of an improvement? And all like all of those little improvements just added up into something really impressive. Uh, just a very impressive package here. I hear, uh, I hear that. I hear that often. <laughs> all right. Anyway, uh, that was your number. That was six. my six. So your right, five so, is next. Yeah, let's go to my five. Sorry, I've got a. I'm dealing with my dog at the same time here, so I'm a little distracted. My number five is a card that it's it's my first like printed into modern card. You know, from from cards that have already existed, right? Yep. And I think this card has a chance to warp the format, break decks in half, or just make decks that were good or right on the edge of being good into good and playable, and that's Goblin Bombardment. And for people at home that might not know uh, what that card does, it's an oldie but a goodie. It's an enchantment that costs one and a red, and it has one simple line of text, right, Ross? It's just sacrifice a creature, deal one damage to any target. Pretty simple, right? Very simple. Very simple. When I tell you that this card is good, I want people at home to understand how good this card was. There was an, there was a deck in Legacy for a long time built around this. Um, like when I think of decks in Modern that have been good, like when I think of Dredge, when I think of decks like Hogak, especially when it had Bridge and stuff, this card would have been unreal and just another way for that deck to attack you. You know, like you know, it gets around like in, at the time one of the ways to beat Hogak was to put Ensnaring Bridge into play, and you could easily laugh off an Ensnaring Bridge of the Goblin Bombardment, right? You know, you'd just be like, all right, easily make twenty. 20 zombies just hit you in the face for a million kind of thing. I think this card is going to be very, very good, especially considering um, how easy it is to abuse it in modern. Of cards like Gravecrawler, um, what's Blood the one drop? Bloodgast. Like, there's just so many cards like that, right? Even one drops that, you know, kind of help feed this card. I literally just blank the card. I always do. It's the one drop that mills three cards when it dies. Stitcher Supplier. Cards. Stitcher Supplier automatically just, like, you know, goes into this. Any cheap card that makes multiple bodies, too, you know, um, I th you know, think of you know, like there's a couple of goblins, there's a couple of you know zombies yeah. that like do stuff when they die. Mo Mog War Marshal is the big one. Two mana say, for Mog three War bodies. Marshall. That's that's right where I was thinking. That's two mana three bodies. So you're you're putting creatures into play and you're getting a bolt out of it, right? And you don't have to pay the echo. You're getting a lot of value out of your card. Um, it's one of those cards that looks innocuous. I think it's going to be very good if some kind of Jund or Black Red Sacrifice deck becomes good. 
in modern, which I've always thought they were close. You know, like close to being good. If some deck like that is good, it's going to be around the, the power of this card and this card, you know, pushing it over the edge. And then not to mention how well this card matches up in certain matchups that already exist. So uh, it helps you out in the burn matchup by killing their their creatures and making them have to straight burn you out to win the game. So like it gives you kind of like longevity and the extra removal spells because your creatures generally can't block that you're playing along with this, but it gives you the ability to quote unquote block their guy, you know, their creatures, you know, that kind of stuff. It gives you like burn out playing against like shadow, you know, it gives you extra reach against those decks. Um, any decks that are going to slow you down and make the game go long. It makes any of their removal bad as the game goes on or the removal worse, you know, cause you're just like, you know, throwing your creatures at them in- instead and stuff like that. So big fan of this card. I think it's going to spawn a lot of decks and, I've got to believe you're a big fan of this one as well. Well, I wrote an entire article about it. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's a, a safe bet. This is actually my number five as well. So mm-hmm. we are perfectly nice. aligned on Goblin Bombardment. High five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. And, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, I would add that, you know, when you think about sacrifice decks, we're a little bit spoiled or have been spoiled recently with how many impressive tools they have against opposing creature decks. Things like Mayhem Devil, Claim the Firstborn, Priest of Forgotten Gods. These gave the Sacrifice decks a really good creature matchup. But Not that, to mention, it was just a good, easy Sacrifice outlet, which we didn't have for a long time either. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, those tools that we had in Standard and now have in Historic and, and Pioneer, they're not uh, they're not quite up to modern power level standards. I've actually done some cool things with Mayhem Devil. Claim is, is fine, but, you know, we already have good one-mana removal. Like, one of the reasons that Claim was so good in Standard is you don't often have access to good one-mana removal for, you know, three-mana creatures. Uh, so, you know, that's not as much of an upgrade, though it is good still. The But when you really think about Sacrifice decks, they tend to be pretty weak against just good creature decks, good-sized creature decks, because you're usually playing a lot of cards devoted to your Sacrifice engine. You know, usually a lot of creatures that are small, but they keep coming back from the graveyard somehow. Things like Bloodgast and Gravecrawler. You know, those creatures are not very good in combat. One of the things that you can do against them is just play big creatures and exploit the fact that that deck, you know, doesn't have a lot of removal and say, yeah, like, you gained a lot of card advantage, you know, drawing three Bloodgasts or, like, you know, uh, or setting up, bringing back a bunch of Bloodgasts and Gravecrawlers and stuff. But I don't really care because I have two Tarmogoyfs. And that's just going to dominate the battlefield until I can find something even more powerful. And there's not really much you can do about it. You know, that's why Conflagrate has been one of the uh, really important cards historically in Modern Dredge. Because it gave you an easy way to interact and one that you could find consistently against creatures that would just brick wall your team of random idiots. Because it doesn't matter how many times your creatures can come back from the graveyard if if the brick wall never gets removed. So these sacrifice decks usually want to play against opposing decks with lots of removal and lots of discard and things like that because they're very good at grinding through their opponent's interaction. But against decks that don't are that don't care about interacting, the aggressive decks of the format or the combo decks of the format even, you're usually a little slow. Your creatures aren't as mana efficient, but you're getting them into play in in a neat way that's usually gaining you card advantage or can sometimes be really explosive in the case of dredge. But, you know, you and you don't have much space for interaction to really solve those matchups. So that's historically been the issue with Sacrifice decks you know, in general. Goblin Bombardment is a card that really does help you solve a lot of those issues. 
It is great at just dominating the battlefield against creature decks. Now you're suddenly turning those blood gas and grave crawlers that keep coming back into removal. And so eventually you whittle your opponent's battlefield down to nothing, or you whittle their life total down to nothing, right? And either either way, you're fine. And then whittling their life total also means that you've now increased your clock. So instead of playing, you know, when you return a Bloodgast, uh, you know, on turn two, instead of just casting a Tarmogoyf like Jundawood or, you know, casting Burning Tree Emissary or any host of a, like, aggressive threat, you know, Monastery Swift Spear, then now you have a way to make up your, make up the difference in your clock against combo decks. So it really is a flexible card in what it does, and it offers things that sacrifice decks sorely need. Because Modern does have great, you know, enablers for sacrifice decks in terms of, uh, you know, recursive threats. Bloodgast is an incredibly powerful magic card. Yeah. Right? Agreed. Getting a creature back from the graveyard for no mana investment, and especially with fetch lands, letting you double up on landfall, really, really impressive. And Gravecrawler, again, offering a, a sort of repeatable effect when you have a zombie in play, you just keep sacrificing it and bringing it back for only one mana. You know, now your, your, your synergies start to really degenerate into something broken and all we've what you're you're right we've lacked just a really good sacrifice outlet carrion feeder is a fine one you know it's a zombie yeah. for a grave crawler it can get pretty big eventually but it it doesn't help in combat because it doesn't block or at least it doesn't help that much and it starts out really small so occasionally you just have it out early because you, you just want to you know develop your battlefield and it gets lava darted or bolted or something so you know it's a fine card but it's not great goblin barbin is the car is a card that can win a game by itself yeah, like you, you were just talking about it, and I got kind of excited thinking about having Bloodgast, a Fetchland, Goblin Bombardment, and like uh, like you were saying, any other thing that, you know, if you were to sacrifice something, gain some value, right? Deal a damage, do something along those lines. There's been other cards printed that when you sacrifice, you know, permanent, do something. And just that combo right there is big enough to take down a lot of creatures in the format or to kill your opponent in like a very short amount of time. You know, you're bolting or flame rifting your opponent almost every turn with those combos of cards, not to mention whatever else you're actually investing your mana in, because this actually doesn't cost mana as we're doing this. And, you know, I'm thinking about this in the reach that's in these decks. And if you're playing ways to fill up your graveyard, you know, because you're, you know, you're playing these recursive threats, you know, I'm also thinking about, you know, playing, uh, you know, uh, any cards that come back from the graveyard that have some value, you know, like that. Um, you know, Goblin Bombardment along with uh, the Red Black Titan. I God, why am I blinking on names so bad today? Croxa, yeah. You know, Goblin Bombardment along with a Croxa or two sounds pretty good to me. You know, you're like, cast it, trigger on the stack, make you pitch, deal another one to you. It's in my graveyard. Fill up my yeah. graveyard, cast it again, keep dealing more damage to you. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. like, make you discard a card, kill your Ignoble Hierarch, you know? Yeah. Kill your Narcomy, but, yeah. you know, take a little pressure off my life total. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Someone goes, you know, turn one citrus supplier, and you're like, all right, land, ignoble, hierarch, or whatever, go. And they're just like, goblin bombardment, attack you. Like, what? Like, I'm dead. Like, I'm actually just dead, right? The game's over. You know, like, yeah, the game is actually over. And, like, that's going to be a thing that happens in this format a lot, you know? And seeing goblin bombardment get printed and stuff like this, if this deck becomes popular, it actually makes, and this is a little bit of a, a, a teaser or a spoiler, it makes the top cards that I've picked a little worse. So yeah. anyway, but no, no, I, I'm going to be trying out Goblin Bombardment decks and I think there's a lot of potential there. Yep, absolutely. Uh, speaking of a lot of potential, my number four is a card that you've already talked about in length and I'm going to talk about why I have it at four and you had it, I think, at seven? Suspend? You had it at seven? Yeah. yeah. Wow, you um, had it at four. 
I like the card a lot. I think it's very, very good. I think it's playable in modern. I think it's possibly very good in legacy. And th- and that's why I have it up higher. Um, if it's if it's good in modern and it's good in legacy, this is a this is a big find, right? And this isn't the kind of card that you're gonna have as a four of unless it becomes just like absurdly good in a lot of spots. You know, you talked about all the synergies with it with like your creatures, your opponent's creatures, yada yada yada. In legacy, this is this is another I mean, this is not another. This is a blue removal spell that the deck has always wanted, right? You've always seen, like, the blue-red Delver decks splash black, right? To kind of have, like, removal for Gurmag Angler. To have removal for Opposing Termogoist. To have removal for a 2020 Merit Lage token. This card does all of those things, right? It gives you the few turns to get through, to push yourself through. It's also a spell to help flip your Delvers. It's cheap, which is, like, one of the biggest things, right? So it's a one-casting-cost spell, and it's blue. It pitches the force of will. It pitches the force of negation, which, you know, you're generally playing six of now in these decks. So any extra blue cards is a big deal. And I think this card is just great. You know, it kills the Knight of the Reliquary for a turn or two, which is generally enough to get you through, you know? And in Legacy, you know, the Delver decks can go long and the, and the, and the games can go pretty long. But like, here's the thing. In those two turns, you will find a way to recoup your your value lost if they get their creature back and that creature starts doing things because of the fact that, A, you're getting creatures through and attacking. B, during those two turns, you're generally more efficient with your mana than your opponent is out of your double deck because you're now pondering, you're now brainstorming, you know, you're casting expressive iteration, you know, you're, you're, you're turning through your deck. So, like, card quality and quantity is not going to be a problem as the game goes on. And then when the card isn't great, when it's when it's when it's not amazing, it's just an easy pitch to force of will. It's an easy pitch to force negation. So I could like see myself playing multiple copies of this main in some Delver decks. And if and if a good blue tempo deck happens to come up in modern, then you're gonna be playing it in there too. It, I love that you mentioned that it, how well it goes with some of your own creatures as well. You know, getting to you know hit some of your own incarnations and stuff. I I just like this card a lot. I love good f- flexible blue cards. And don't get me wrong when I say that. This is a very flexible blue card. And that doesn't jive with the normal, like, definition of that, right? You think of something like Cryptic Command. You know, a card that has a ton of text where, like, it does this, 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 or this. This card does one thing, right? It has one piece of text. You also don't think of flexibility and one mana. Normally, you're paying extra for that flexibility. So really nice to see flexibility at such a low Mm -hmm. cost. Yeah, and I'm just I'm just a, I'm just a huge fan of it. like it gives you an answer to Gristlebrand game one, which generally if they've put Gristlebrand into play and you're like okay like suspend it and they, they draw seven more cards like you're probably still dead, but at least you like have that feeling like you're like I at least maybe have two turns maybe right and I guess the black red version of Reanimator like it it can be enough like you know if they take if they take seven they might have taken seven on putting Gristlebrand into play so like they can't just willy-nilly fire off their whole life total you might just bolt them twice and kill them you know kind of thing so i don't know i'm a big fan of the card i see it being possibly very very good it just being a and like I, I i can see it possibly being like a staple for years and years and years to come if legacy is still played and it just being like you know a one or two of in a legacy deck for a long time and for me that that's a pretty high card on a list so yeah no i think the ceiling on the card is is very high higher than people are giving it credit for Every time I read it, every single time I read it, I was just like, am I missing something? Like, you know, I feel like I'm missing something. But no, I, I think it's just good enough to be to be there. All right. What's your number four? My number four is another repeat here. And talk about, you know, flexibility at a low cost. It's Urza Saga again. 
you know, I, I mentioned it when when it was on your list, but for a card at, at this at zero mana being a land, you know, it is a card that can enable a ramp strategy, it can enable a toolbox prison strategy, it can enable an attrition strategy, it can do enable a deck that does any mix of those things. Uh, and you know, there is so much power in any effect that searches your library, regardless of how restrictive. We've already seen things like Teleria West be really good searching for zero mana things. Granted, this can't find lands, um, but it, it there there are enough good cards that this card finds, and it's only going to get better as more of those you know cheap artifacts yeah. get printed. That there there's just no doubt in my mind that this is one of the premier yeah. cards in the set. Absolutely, I I, th- I think this card is just going to be very very good. Yeah, and and when it was first revealed, you know, it was, uh, like you said, it was one of the first cards revealed in the entire set. Everyone was going nuts about it because it was the best of those early cards that were revealed. Um, you know, Sancta Prelate is also very good, but it's you know a card that already exists. So Urza Saga had a little bit more hype being brand new, but it, it was getting a lot of hype, and I feel like that it's been buried now because it was revealed so early. Uh, you know, so I agree with you there. I think it's now being a little bit underrated or a little bit overlooked just because yep. it, it came so early in the previous season. Yep, and so I think this moves on to my third ranked card. Yep. Right? And for me, uh, this is one of the first ones that's, like, really flashy, right? So, so before you before you say yours, so I'll, I'll say right now that none of my top three have appeared on your list previously, and I cannot imagine you leaving any of these three cards off. So I feel like we have the same top three. I'm just wondering if we have yeah, the same the order. order. Um, I think it's going to be pretty close. I think it's going to be pretty close. But for me, uh, my third one, and like I said, uh, I think this is like one of the flashiest of the three, if not the flashiest of the three. And uh, I'm not saying that because it has the ability flash because it doesn't have that. I'm saying just it, this one's one of the ones you look at it, and you're like, this card is busted. Like this card is good. It looks great. This is one of the, you know, every set has like flagship cards, you know, cards that are like, they're either on the packaging or like this is a card that like you buy packs and you want to open it even if you don't want to play it because it's going to be worth money you know kind of thing and for me grief is exactly that card i think this card is amazing for everybody at home that uh doesn't know this is two black black for a elemental incarnation it's three it's a three two menace when it enters the battlefield your opponent reveals their hand you choose a non-land card from it and they discard that card and you can evoke it by exiling a black card from your hand when these cards got previewed, the Elemental Incarnations, like, collectively, Magic Twitter lost their damn mind, right? Everybody's like, these cards are busted. Uh, I, hold, I heard multiple people, because I think this was the first one of its cycle that got that got previewed. And, uh, like, I can't tell you how many times I got text messages or private messages, DMs, where this is the card that's going to get banned first. Right? This is, this is the first card that's going to get banned. I like this one the best out of the entire five. I think this one is has the highest ceiling because of what it can do through the span of a game. I mentioned it a little bit earlier, you know, when I talked about, like, the red-black reanimator decks. This this feels like Unmask does in Legacy. And for anyone who's played Legacy, when you get Unmasked, you know that you're probably dead, right? And Grief is going to do a lot of really unfair things. We've already seen decks where people are, like, playing Ephemerate and other ways. You know, Suspend even works well with this card. You know, a lot of the Evoke trigger on the stack. You can you can, you can can do some, some funky things with this card. Also, when it comes to all of them... I think at the mana cost, this is the best one for its mana cost, casting it, right? Like, the blue one is also a 4-drop, but 
I think this one's just a little bit better when you just actually hard cast it because like it's still going to be pretty relevant to take a card out of their hand. You're generally going to be casting it on probably on turn three and a lot of the decks that you want to hard cast this out, you know, you know, playing along with some kind of uh, mana acceleration type thing. And it has Menace, which is not irrelevant because you're playing black. It's going to be a way to kill your opponent because it's probably going to be able to attack being unblockable a couple times in the matchups where you want it. And then with the matchups where you need it to be this like super fast haymaker card, you're completely okay, like, quote unquote, getting two for one, right? There's a lot of ways to bring this back from the graveyard to put it into play. I mean, here's the thing. I think it's great that they made most of these cost four or five besides the green ones. You can't just like unearth them as well because that would just be like pretty ridiculous. You know, just do apparently this. Uh, this card started out as a three mana card, but the uh, the triggered ability was unmoored ego, not unmask. Okay. And just blinking unmoored ego and unearthing it was a miserable play experience. Yeah, they just because like the the first one hits something, the second one always hits the right card in your deck because they, they've they, they've looked through and they get the cards out of your hand. Like that sounds miserable because you could just do it multiple times in a turn. Yeah, that sounds awful. I'm going to let you talk about this card a lot, so it's not just me waxing poetically. Uh, I don't know. Well, it matters what you have as three. We can kind of... We t- I'll tell you what. Since we already know that the cards are going to be overlapping, what number is this for you? This um, this is two I'm taking, for me. I was going to say, I was gonna take a guess and say number two. Um, what can you say about this card that I haven't? Um, so, not much. I will say that the hype around this card has a, has a lot to do with the synergy with... Um, the, the rebound blink card ephemerate ephemerate right hey i got i got to help you this time yes and you know we've played that combo a couple times now on versus and every time they've had it it has immediately won the game yeah i don't see you coming back from it very often yeah it's it was just busted every time and it's almost impossible to break up even if you're on the play and your opponent has it and you have a bolt in your hand that's not enough because they get to stack the evoke trigger on the bottom to sacrifice the grief, then put the discard trigger on the stack. If you go to bolt in response to the discard trigger, they respond with the ephemerate. If you let it resolve, they take the bolt and then ephemerate with the coast is clear. So you literally need two pieces of one or zero mana interaction at instant speed in order to break this up. And there's not that many. Like yeah. you're not going to have enough in your deck. <laughs> like you know, I I guess the 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 red pitch creature could be one of them uh to evoke that but then you're you know you're still losing two cards right so uh, on a creature that you know right now is gonna die so it's uh yeah that that combo is powerful but my one reservation about the card is that i don't think the decks that combo go into are good so what ends up happening is the games where you don't have it on turn one your deck looks pretty bad because There's not a lot of overlap there to get enough black cards in your deck and then still make Ephemerate a good card. You know, Ephemerate wants to go with mostly white cards, but you need a good number of black cards in order to evoke grief consistently on turn one. So in order to enable this quote-unquote combo, you really need to make your deck overall a lot worse. So I think that combo right now is being a little bit overrated just because it's going to okay. end up forcing you into a bad deck. But just grief by itself is quite good. You know, obviously the unmask mode, unmask is a card with with a pedigree. It'll, you know, just doing that is fine. But then just casting it at four mana in modern, perfectly fine. You know, against the decks that are playing Archmage's Charm and Cryptic Command, you know, that's this is sort of your proactive Cryptic Command if you're the Thoughtseize deck, right? Yeah. You're you know, you're getting your three two, you're getting another card out of your out of their hand, you're generating some card advantage, you're applying some pressure. So I think that aspect of the card is actually being underrated right now. Uh 
and that you know the the quality of that is just going to push the card you know up the list for me. Yeah, uh, one of the better black creatures printed in quite a while. Uh, I think this card is very very good, and I think this is going to you're going to see a lot of people do a lot of things with this card, right? Like they're going to be trying it out in different decks, and like some decks it won't work, and then some decks it's going to overperform in. You know, and some decks is going to underperform, and that's just the the reason why we have this card so high on our list. Yeah. So. And then, uh, so my number three is Aragavan Nimble Pilferer. So this mm-hmm. is a red for a 2-1 legendary creature. What is this type, like ape or monkey or something? M- monkey pirate. Monkey pirate, yeah. Uh, and it says, uh, whenever this creature deals combat damage to an opponent, you exile the top card of their library and create a treasure token. You may play that card this turn, or may cast that card, sorry. Uh, you don't get to play lands off of it. And you know, uh, and you have to pay the actual mana cost, but presumably the treasure does does help you cast it, and also has dash for one and a red. Incredibly powerful one drop. Todd Anderson wrote an article on SCG last week comparing it to Deathrite Shaman. I think the comparison is apt. Granted, when he when I say that, he's not saying the card is as good as Deathrite Shaman because it's not. But it's it snowballs in a very similar way. You know, it, every if it goes unanswered, you're just going to attack every turn, make a treasure every turn, and create this huge mana advantage that your opponent is going to have so much trouble, you know, uh, contending with. And it's that mana advantage that is really the key part of the card. And then Ragavan, you know, puts even more, like, gives you even more. It gives you potential card advantage. The fact that it has dash means it can be a little bit better late. It can dodge sweepers. It can immediately, you know... Uh, impact the the battlefield when you need it to. Uh, so obviously an incredible card when it goes unanswered. And at one mana, the opportunity cost is very low. The only reason it's not even higher on my list is that as a one mana 2-1, I think there's going to be a lot of games, especially in modern. I, I have suspect, Tannen, that you put this card a little bit higher on your list because of its potential in Legacy, which I think is higher than it in modern, whereas my list is a little bit more modern-focused. In modern, I think there's just going to be a lot of games where a one mana two one never gets to attack or block profitably, especially if Agreed. you don't draw it early. And so that keeps it, you know, away from the very top of my list. The hesitation, but you know, we've played this card a bit on versus, and every time it goes unanswered, it is game winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and finish off. You know, I haven't said my number two or my number one, and I'm just going to go ahead and say this and say them because you know it's they're all overlapping. Um, I have Ragavan as number one, and I'm very not close, surprised. Yeah, and very closely followed by Ignoble Hierarch as number two, and that's the that's the big reveal. That's the other card that you know. Obviously, you and I are huge and high on. And I'm going to go ahead and talk about Ragavan because it's, it, it allows us to easily just talk about Ignoble Hierarch next. You know, yeah. it's your it's your number one. And, my I know two, we so. normally try to do the yeah. big reveal at the end, but I think yeah. it was pretty obvious what we were building to. So yeah. you know, let's not build fake suspense. I think you nailed it when you talk about modern, right? Like you're talking about a format that everyone has Fatal Push Bolt or God forbid you get lava darted on this card. It's going to feel bad, right? Yeah. But I remember when you and I talked about this card, and not just because of the casting cost and the power and toughness, I was like, this this feels almost like um, the Goblin card. God, I'm so bad. Goblin at Lackey. Yeah, it feels almost like Goblin Lackey, where yeah. like it's so demoralizing to see this on on turn one of the other side, and then you look at your hand, and you're like, I can't, I can't kill it. Yeah. It's like a Goblin Lackey that doesn't demand any deck-building restrictions from you, whereas Goblin Lackey demanded huge deck-building restrictions from you. So while I do think this is a a playable card in Modern, I think it's a playable card, right? 
when I look at the way decks are constructed right now in Legacy, I think this card has the potential to be very, very, very good because there's not a lot of, like, natural prey. Because, like, what are you going to do? You're going to play Ragavan on one, and what's your opponent going to do? Like, cast Delver of Secrets and, and block? <laughs> like, what? Like, no. That's, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's not even good, right? And, like, your deck's going to have four Lightning Bolt in it, right? Probably have a Chain Lightning or two, maybe a Forked Bolt, you know, you're thinking in this. Um, lots of other, you know, stuff along those lines. Like, you know, some some really broken things you can do there. Plus, not to mention, I think the highest opportunity for you to immediately get some kind of impact card off of your opponent's deck. Like, can you imagine playing this in, like, Blue Red Delver, and you get to attack with it, right? And they're like, okay, and they flip the top card. It's Ponder, Brainstorm, Delver of Secrets, Preordain, like, Lightning, like, literally Lightning Bolt. I don't care. Just take three, Tannen, right? I triggered the card twice today, and I revealed Delver of Secrets both times. Yeah. And you're just like, thanks, thanks, bud. You know, like, like you know, it, it's it's really good. Like, so obviously that's really good, right? And then, you know, I'm thinking about the games where, l let's say the cards you reveal are never actual cards you can cast or that you want to cast, right? You're like, oh, reveal a land, reveal a land, reveal Gristle Brand or something, right? Like, who cares, right? But you're getting all this extra mana, right? This allows your wastelands to fire off a lot easier, right? You never need to tap them for mana. You have a ton of extra mana. You can hard cast Force of Negation and Force of Will a lot easier, so you don't have to pitch cards to it. Um, this is another card that makes Expressive Iteration even better in Legacy and possibly in Modern if you're playing alongside because the, the biggest choke point for Expressive Iteration in these formats is not being able to play it on turn two that often, right? But if I attack with a Ragavan on turn two and I have an extra mana... And if my deck is constructed a certain way, I can fire off Expressive Iteration here very easily and possibly even hit my next land drop, right? If I just have one land in my treasure token. So I can just, like, fire off this, like, hit a land, put a spell into my hand, go, right? Like, that's simple. That's not even that complicated of a thing, right? That's a very common thing that could possibly happen, and that's very, very good, right? Yeah. This makes, this makes Expressive Iteration good later in the games. Like, you can start hard casting your spells a lot easier. It makes the... the, uh, the Days a lot better as the game goes on because like now you can you know a very aggressively days still be able to cast your two and three drops and then be able to hold the land in your hand to brainstorm away like I think the ramifications of this card hitting your opponent on the play is like we haven't seen it yet and you need to experience it to understand it and it's going to be like one of the first times that you play Legacy and your opponent plays Deathrite Shaman on one and you do literally anything else that doesn't kill them and you say go. Yeah. Or just, you do aim your lightning bolt at it, and they daze you, and the game yeah. is still over. <laughs> the game is still over, right? And so I think that it, it in my mind, it fits there. It fits there the best, right? Like it's like you said, like in modern, I see this card being good, but I see a lot of people playing around it. You know, blah blah blah. Um, dash is a literal thing, like you said too. It makes it makes itself better because like it is a legendary creature. So like later in the game, if you have a bunch of you know treasure, you're like, okay, well, I have a bunch of mana, so I'll just dash this at you. You know, and, and hit you, and like, because I want to get an extra spell possibly this turn, yeah. kind of thing, right? Because if if the game is even remotely like going long, and you hit your opponent, and you hit a cantrip off this, or like some kind of card draw spell that you can cast, I think the game just ended on the spot. Like they're probably not going to come back from this kind of thing. And I cannot stress enough how like great I think this card is. Also, have you seen the price on this card? Or whatever you know. I think the last I saw. It was pre-ordering on SCG for a 45, and it was sold out. I, I think somebody, was, I think Brian Basoko was talking to me about it today. Normal ones, like like the the basic, basic Ragavan is like 60 right now, if you can get it. And that's like, you can't even guarantee it, because like, who knows how many packs you're going to get, right? Because like, you know, like some stores might not get their full allotment. 
You know, SEG is probably going to be one of the, the places you can guarantee you will get your order from and stuff like that. So I'm not trying to like doom and gloom anyone or freak them out. You know, thankfully, I'm very happy that we don't have like a team tournament week one of this. Because I'd just be like, all right, here's $400 for my deck. You know, like here's, yeah. give me four Ragavans, please. You know, like kind of thing. Because I would be, I would be like, play, I'd probably play like three, honestly. Just because like I don't want to put that many non-blue cards in my deck. And I don't want to just make this a Ragavan show. I know I'm going pretty late in this, but like I want to stress enough how excited I am to play with this card and pissed off to play against it and stuff. So we'll see about it in in modern. I I I think the card is going to get banned in Lexi. I think it's very possible it gets banned in Lexi. I, I, I'm confident. Like I'm confident that it'll be banned in Lexi. I would bet on it. Unless they do the thing where they're like, all right, we'll finally ban Delver, so this card can stay around. It's like, please don't do that. <laughs> I think this card's better than Delver. Uh, that's debatable. Like a blue card with evasion for one mana is, is pretty good, but like, yeah, it's, I think this card is, I think this card is very good and, and possibly better, but we'll see. Yeah. I think Delver just fits the deck better. Does that make sense? Does that make I, sense? I wonder, I wonder if you should start playing like the oath, the, like the, the one blue sorcery that makes it O three and investigate. So you can block Ragavans like mm. probably not legacy, oh. but in modern, nah, I don't know if it's going to be that important in modern, right? Like you, you, because like the thing is in legacy, like some people are playing Fatal Push, not a lot, right? Some people are playing Source of Plowshares, not a lot, and some people are playing, you know, Bolt. But it's like you have so many decks that like don't have a lot of answers to this card, right? And then if oh they might be able to block it, but like let's be real, if I turn one Ragavan, I'm rooting for you to cast a creature. That's like best case scenario for me because like I'm either going to offer the trade, I have another Ragavan. Or I'm going to kill your creature with a removal spell I have in my hand. Or I'm going to ponder into one. Like, the odds of, like, me playing a Ragavan, you playing a creature, and me just being stonewalled are so low. And then, like, half the time, what is the creature that you're playing? Like, Mother of Runes? I'd probably just take that trade. And you have oh, yeah. to make that trade. Most of the time. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, like, I think the, the effect of this... And this is why I have it as my number one. I think the overall effect it's going to have on games is so damn high. To use a meme, and and that's why it's number one to me. Uh, you have anything else you want to add? I've kind of talked. So uh, I I just want to add that we've spent a lot of time talking about how this card is going to play in fair matchups, right? And talking about you know the prospect of trying to block it or trying to use removal on it. Think about how well this card plays in unfair matchups. Like, can you imagine playing this on like you know in Legacy? Obviously, like if you're playing Delver and you play this on turn one on the play against Storm. Like, and you suddenly just have five extra mana to work with over the course of the game, like, it becomes so easy to just cast all of your threats and all of your cantrips and find all of your disruption as immediately. It, no, and that's, like, that is a great example. That's kind of what I was getting at, is, like, how many times have you looked over and I'm playing at Storm or I'm playing at Sneak and Show, and, like, I have my one threat in play, right? Like, I the perfect hands are the ones that have Delver and then re reactionary spells, right? Because you can get your threat into play before they try to kill you. And then you can just use your mana to stop them, right? But there's so many games where my hand is just bottlenecked because, like, I can't play a second threat because I can't leave mana open. But now, like, I hit you with this Ragavan, I have three mana. I'm like, all right, well, here's another threat. Still holding up two mana. So I still have my free spells plus the spells in my hand. And, like, it's, it's just another good one drop, which, th like, that's not okay for that deck. Like, every time that the Delver deck has had multiple good one drops, it has been, like, broken. Exactly. And in modern, the same thing is happening. Like, imagine playing this card turn one against Tron. Like, either your red deck is going to kill them 
before they before they do anything, or you're playing it in a sort of you know semi disruptive deck, and you're gonna get to cast all your disruption. Like you can turn to your Blood Moon, you can turn to a Molten Rain off of it. You can please, you know please stop, please yeah, stop. I'm hurting. You know, I'm hurting. I'm playing against Amulet dead. Titan. You know, it, it just, like, the treasure snowballs so quickly. If you turn to a Blood Moon with this card, then you've got a Ragavan that keeps making treasures, and you just get to cast all your spells. I don't even care what colors they are. Yeah, who gives a shit about your land yeah. at that point? Yeah, you might be casting their spells. I, I, like, yeah. Can you can you imagine playing this on turn one and having your opponent play, like, Utopia Sprawl, and then you just hit their Blood Moon, or, like, you hit their Pillage? Right, you molten rain them, like uh, yeah, stone rain them. Yeah, you hit their stone rain if they're playing the the that deck, like and and they utopia sprawled their land, and you're just like, yeah, oh my two one just drew me a card that two for one to you and yeah. set you even further behind on tempo, so I'm gonna get to connect with it next turn too. It, yeah. Just the there are so many ways that this card ends, and we're we're looking at it with rose colored glasses a little bit right now, but like there's not there's not other one drops that have this kind of upside. Like you don't see the ability for one mana cards to completely take over the game. One mana cards are good because the opportunity cost is so low. You know they're diff and they're difficult to trade with effectively, right? You know, but like they don't take over the game the way like an Urza does or the way a Planeswalker does on turn three or four or five. But this card can do that, and it can do it pretty easily. So now you're getting low opportunity cost and high upside to be a card that takes over the game and that combination i'm not sure we've seen it before i get like or at least since death right shaman and so that's where like that's where the comparisons come in yeah absolutely all right let's give ignoble hierarchs it's time to shine because it's your it's my number two and your number one yes and let's talk about this. and I'll, I'll say this i think this is the card that rose the most on my list like over the last few days and I, it's one of those cards that's like, man, Noble Hierarch's not even really playable that much in Modern. You know, everyone's got, like, we keep talking about the Lava Dart, Lightning Bolt, Fatal Push thing. But, like, I think the fact that, I guess I'll, I'll read the card. Okay, for everybody at home, too. It's one green mana for a zero one Goblin Shaman. That's relevant. It's a Goblin. It has Exalted, and it taps for Jund mana, black, green, red, instead of Bant, like Noble Hierarch did. And I'm going to let you talk a lot about this, but I just want to say one or two things the decks that didn't have this kind of effect that have it now kind of really wanted it and stuff. So like, this is just another really good creature for those decks. Yeah. You know, I think that the instinct for a lot of people with new cards is to try to figure out what good decks that they get slotted into and what ignoble hierarch is going to act a little bit differently. It's going to bolster a lot of fringe decks and give them a flagship card and make no mistake. Like this is a flagship card. This is the kind of card that elevates decks when you have access to it and when you're making very good use of it. And it's decks that really just didn't have good mana as a result. You know, things that were trying to cast Kiki-Jiki with some creature to combo it with and Triple Red was too difficult. Trying to cast, uh, you know, Infect decks that were trying to cast um, uh, Phyrexian Crusader, which is awesome against red removal. But Real is- quick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. Did you see the nerf that uh, Infect decks got today? What? So they changed... They made Phyrexian a creature type. Oh, yeah, so Plague Engineer can name Phyrexian. And so Plague Engineer can now name Phyrexian. It hits every single creature in the that has impact. Yeah. Well, it doesn't kill Phyrexian Crusader. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. that, like, it's it's another little thing that, like, you know, it happened on Magic. Like, everyone saw it on Magic Online. A bunch of creatures are Phyrexian now, and it's like, 
wait, that actually hurts the deck versus Plague Engineer. But anyway, sorry, continue. Is, is Ink Moth Nexus turned into a Phyrexian Plague That Moth one I'm creature? not sure of. Let me check on that while you keep talking some more about yeah. Ignoble Hierarchy. So, you know, like Phyrexian Crusader is incredible against prowess decks. You know, a lot of them just don't have an answer to it. Uh, you know, in your Infect deck, if you think that you're going to Kozlek's return, my Phyrexian Crusader, you got another thing coming because I have mm-hmm. 24 cards in my deck that will stop that from happening, all of which cost one or zero mana in the case of Mutagenic Growth. Uh, and the issue with that deck has always, uh, it's been twofold. One of them is Blighted Agent is super important in matchups where your opponent is playing a bunch of creatures to block. But the the bigger one was the Golgari mana base sucked because you were trying to cast a black-black creature in a deck that is yeah. almost all green yep. that plays a low land count, some utility lands like Pendlehaven or Dryad Arbor, and four colorless lands. So you just didn't have a lot of black sources, and the fact that your Noble Hierarch didn't tap for black was a big deal. Like, sometimes Noble Hierarch is your only blue source in Infect. Like, I've, I've, had, I've played that deck before. I've had games where I cast Noble Hierarch turn one and was just praying I untapped with it so I could cast my Blighted Agent. Blighted Agent, The yeah. good news is everybody let you untap with Noble Hierarch because they thought they had to save all their removal for Infect creatures. They're wrong. Noble Hierarch is the best card in the deck, and in Golgari Infect, Ignoble Hierarch will be the best card in the deck. Uh, so, you know, kill those creatures in, in those decks. I would often just, like, play then play Blighted Agent, have a protection up for their removal, and then kill them. Uh, but... Like Ignoble Hierarch really goes a long way towards fixing their mana. It also goes a long way towards accelerating any goblin strategy. You know that's a deck that we saw in modern quite a quite a bit with the combo now in it, but it ended up being just a little bit too slow because the games where you had Vile on turn one were completely different from the games where you didn't. And now you have the either turn one Vile or turn one Ignoble Hierarch. That's a big deal. Cavern of Souls, Fetchland, Shocklands. Your mana base is going to be fine. Don't worry about that. So there's so many decks that this card really does supercharge because they needed help with their mana. I've got an idea kicking around in my head trying to, and this was in my article about Ignoble Hierarch, um, trying to go turn one Ignoble Hierarch, turn two season Pyromancer, and discarding Vengevine and Blazing Rootwalla. And you get to cast the Rootwalla, and that triggers the Vengevine immediately. So both, you know, you effectively have now have six creatures on the battlefield, and you've drawn two extra cards, and you've attacked for five. And that's turn two. A really good curve requires four specific cards, but like these are the kinds of draws that are enabled by Ignoble Hierarch that aren't enabled by Noble Hierarch just because of the colors required in them. Uh, and so there's going to be so many decks that have significantly better mana than they used to have. And that's a big deal because these decks are going to have different tools to help combat, you know, uh, uh, what's the Plague Engineer? Like, my, my Simic Infect deck is not going to have a lot of removal for Plague Engineer. My Golgari Infect deck is going to have ways to remove Plague Engineer yeah. in it pretty easily. You know, you're going to want Abrupt Decay for their Chalices, too. That one deals with Engineer as well. That's a great sideboard card for Infect decks. Easily slots in now that you're playing black instead of blue. You know, my uh, now my like you know creature deck just has easy access to colors that interact with my opponent i've got thought seeds for your combo deck so my matchup is helped there i get to play you know blood moon if i want access to that against big mana so 
You know, these decks are going to be different. Like, Ignoble Hierarch decks are going to naturally be different than Noble Hierarch decks solely because of the colors available and the different tools available in those colors. And that is going to shift the landscape of modern because now we have diff- the, the, you know, tools that you weren't expecting backed by that same le- power level of mana creature. So I think you're, what you're going to see is not Ignoble Hierarch necessarily slotting into... Um, you know, existing tier one strategies, but really elevating a lot of tier two strategies by plugging the major holes that existed in them. And so I think you're going to see Ignoble Hierarch turn up in a lot of decks. It might not be, you know, the premier card in some of them. It will be in, in, in others. It might not be in the absolute best deck in the format. Maybe Grief or Raghavan show up in those. But I think Ignoble Hierarch is going to make up for that by showing up individually as a card across a wide array of decks. Just because it's, you know, such an individually good card and flexible card and fits into so many different strategies. Uh, so that's why I ended up putting it in number one. If your, you know, sort of criterion for ranking cards is going to be different, you're going to end up with a different list. Yeah. Uh, but honestly, like these three cards, if you put them in any order, I wouldn't flinch. Yeah, exactly. And like the last thing I can say about Ignoble Hierarch is like, don't play it in Jund. Like this is, that's not yes. the deck. Like why? No. That's, you, the, that's not the deck that wants this card. Put your yeah. mana creatures in decks that are playing to the battlefield, playing to the board. That's where they want to be played. Absolutely. So uh, I, I think this card is very, very good. It's very flexible. It's going to kind of, like you said, maybe spawn some newish type decks or like really invigorate some decks that had kind of like lost their luster. And I, I said it already, but don't overlook the fact that it's a goblin. Like this, this might be relevant in, you know, at some point oh, in time. I, I think it absolutely is relevant. Mm-hmm. So uh, some pretty cool stuff uh, going on here. I love our top eight list. I did want to talk about some of our overrated underrated cards and then possibly a card or two that like came close to the list you know they're thinking about so other cards that people can look out for i'm gonna start with my overrated card ross and for me uh just because of the hype that's around the card it's uh dragon's rage channeler dragon's rage channeler that is a mouthful let me make sure i read this good, card good uh, pick. exactly very good pick yeah thanks uh, i've heard a lot well. of i've heard a lot of people talking to me about it uh, it is not the one I chose, but I'm actually I'm kind of mad I didn't pick it. Yeah, and so that's how I am when I hear like half your picks. I'm like, God, he's so smart. Anyway, <laughs> it's a one red mana human shaman. That's a one one. It says whenever you cast a non-creature spell, surveil one. Uh, if you don't know what surveil is, it's look at the top card of your library. You can put that card into your graveyard. So it's kind of like scrying, but instead of on the bottom of your library, it goes in the graveyard, which matters here because the card has delirium. So as long as there are four or more card types among cards in your graveyard. This card gets plus two, plus two, has flying, and attacks each combat they fable. I've heard a lot of people saying this equals Delver of Secrets. Like, you know, this is, you know, which a red version of Delver of Secrets might be better in modern than a blue version. It's debatable, just depending on how the format's going out, blah, blah, blah. This, again, falls prey to the uh, the Fatal Push, Lightning Bolt, Lava Dart thing that's going on, especially with a lot of the best cards in this set being a 0-1 and a 2-1 that are one-drops. You you've got to believe the format might become very hostile to those cards if they start getting very good again. Like, do you remember how good uh, Gutshot was at times when you were playing it in Phoenix? You know, and like, that's what that's like another reason why your deck just got so damn good is yeah. you got to do, you know, you got to do Gutshot and stupid stuff like that and get a ton of value off of it, right? And so, like, if these cards all start getting good again, depending on, you know, decks, you're going to see cards like Lava Dart and Gutshot really start to, you know, tick up and play and stuff again. And... I just don't see this card in the current modern landscape fitting into a deck and being really good or a game changer, right? Like, it's just going to get 
ignored or squashed against like burn uh is it prowess is going to laugh at this attack around it with bigger creatures or kill it and attack you for more because you spit mana on a one one that's not doing anything you know kind of thing i think this is one of those cards that you have to do so much work to make it good it's kind of like grim flayer was right like grim flayer like you had to cast it hope it hit your opponent hope it milled the right cards and then it's better the next time right and so this is one of the things it does have to attack every turn so it's a three three that has to attack your opponent might likely have a way to block i mean having flying kind of like you know helps that out a lot in modern i just don't see it because it still dies to all the other removal i i can be wrong about this card but i don't see this one being format changing in any way shape or form no i'm very low on this card as well and comparisons to delver are ridiculous um you know the thing about delver especially in legacy right and one of the main differences between it and modern uh, it in Legacy and, and it in Modern, and why it's you know just has failed to really be a relevant card in Modern, um, is the the opportunity cost of putting it in your deck. There's so many good cheap spells in in Legacy, like so many, and they're among the most powerful cards in the entire you know format. That yeah, that's like, a good way to put it. Yeah, almost all of your blue decks just have 28 plus instants and sorceries in them. You know, just just without trying. So Delver just naturally slots in as a very effective card. In like modern, you're not having to do anything else. Yeah, right. You're not having to try. Like, it, yeah. In modern, it's really difficult to get above 24, 26. Like, uh, which is not a huge difference, but it is a difference. And you know, even getting to that range for a lot of decks can be tough. Uh, you know, and. There, you know, and then you have to worry when you're sideboarding. You know, sometimes you want to side down on spells, and it gets even worse. So, you know, you don't really want to go below that, and you're not you're you end up costing yourself a lot just in your overall deck construction in order to try to make Delver of Secrets a playable card. Then there's of course the point about you know decks in Modern being more removal dense uh, because the format is just more creature centric than Legacy. We've touched on that numerous times in the past, but you know that that second that. Uh, aspect of how easy it is to turn it into a reliable 3-2 flyer in the early game uh, is another aspect of the, of the card and why it hasn't been as good in modern. This card, Dragon's Rage Channeler, you have to put a lot of work in to make this card good. You're, you're, you're definitely playing Bauble, so you're probably not also playing Delver. You're you know probably playing like Seal of Fire, and you're doing all this other stuff. And so you're making real deck-building concessions and you're doing it in order to, again, like play a one-mana 1-1 one, one that you're hoping to turn into a three-power flyer. And we've already seen that not work in Modern because Delver hasn't done it. And in this I've case, this story. <laughs> you're literally yeah. working harder. And I think you're getting something that's even worse just because it has to attack every turn. Um, and I think it's it's like harder to... You, I don't think you're... I think it's harder to do on turn two. Like Delver, you can flip on turn two in modern a decent portion of the time. This one's really hard. You know, you can fetch land, you can play a discard spell, you can play a bauble, and then play like a cantrip or a removal spell on a creature. And that's a perfect curve. You got to go turn one, the rat channeler, turn two, you know, one bauble, one mana discard, and an instant speed removal spell. Uh, obviously, like it can help if they have a, a discard spell on you, or if maybe you evoke one of these incarnations. There's some other ways around it, but I don't think you're you're attacking for, with this for three on on turn two almost ever. Uh, and so, you know, it's just not it's not going to be consistent enough. I, I get that you look at it and you say like, oh, I'll just like get delirium in my deck, and then I have a one mana three three flyer, and one mana three three flyer is good. But you always have to evaluate that based on 
How difficult is it for me to get Delirium consistently? How much of a cost is it for me to put the cards in my deck in order to achieve that level of consistency? And, you know, what is the fail uh, scenario like? And in this case, it's a one-mana 1-1, and that's just not tenable, and it's not consistently getting that uh, bonus. And And that's not even you know, taking into account the fact that people are playing, you know, Nile, all this graveyard hate, you know, people have main deck Nile spell bombs because of Luris. They have, you know, rest in peace if they want it, if you're trying to dedicate yourself to delirium so they can just shut it off with certain cards that are commonly played across both modern and legacy. So yeah, not, not a card I think is going to see significant play or really any play. Like I would, I would, I would honestly be kind of surprised. I would think that like a delirium deck would have to appear that comes from, a different payoff like i i think that the the bloodbraid marauder is a, a much better delirium payoff than this and it it's if that card is good enough maybe it drags dragon's rage channeler along with it because channeler's ability can enable delirium which is nice um you know you, you could because of your your surveilling and give you some card selection so that's actually the aspect of the card that i like more rather than it just being a Delver of Secrets, but that's going to require some other Delirium payoffs, and you're using it as a sort of bridge card that is both an enabler and a payoff so that your deck is consistently finding enough enablers and enough payoffs at the same time. That's the role, that's the role where I see it being maximized, but I'm not sure that Bloodbraid Marauder is good enough, uh, and you know certainly a card like Grim Flayer is not good enough. You would need some other good one-mana Delirium card, and I don't think that card exists. No, not good enough. All right, so what was your overrated card? My overrated card is Gaia's Will, which is one of the uh, cycle of the uh, cards with no mana cost. And this has, uh, it's sorcery, it has a suspend four for a green, and it is essentially Yawgmoth's Will, right? Yawgmoth's Will, one of the more iconic cards in Magic's history, you know, was a vintage staple for years. Now you don't really see it, right? Uh, Saw play in like the Napster decks, even in, in standard back in the day. And I I think people's understanding of this card is is just superficial. They like obviously when you're in a format with a bunch of fast mana, it's really really good, especially artifact based fast mana that you can reuse. Like you know, play Lotus, sacrifice it, cast Yogg-Boss Will, replay Lotus. Right, that they do in Vintage is an awesome play, but it's really the fast mana that is the star of the show there. Yawgmoth's Will is just the payoff for having a bunch of fast mana in your deck. In formats without fast mana, like Yawgmoth's Will would not be that good. It would actually serve a very different role. It would be this like late game attrition card. You know, I imagine like how would you, how would you play Yawgmoth's Will in sealed deck? You know, you would cast it when you have eight mana late in the game and recast two of the cards from your graveyard or recast your bomb. Right? It would be sort of a glorified regrowth. Uh, and maybe you know you could you could tilt your deck a little bit to take advantage of it with, like, ramp cards and, and things like that. So, you know, this is not a card that is just generically powerful. It's actually a narrowly powerful card. It's narrow in very specific circumstances, and those circumstances don't really exist in modern. There's not a ton of fast mana in the format these days. You know, we've got rid of Mox Opal. We've gotten rid of Simeon Spirit Guide. We, you know, have Lotus Bloom, but that's not one you can recast from your graveyard. All of these other suspend cards, you know, Mox Tantalite, the Soul Ring that's in this set, those aren't cards that are going to work well with this one. So it seems to me like really difficult to get value out of this. Um, and I've seen, I haven't seen a ton of people talking about it, but I just wanted to, you know, bring up the point about card evaluation and how contextual it is. Uh, and so I chose it mainly to be able to give that rant. 
Yeah, I mean, like, the, the card jumps off the page. It's scary when you first read it, and then you think about it more. It's like, where is this going to fit? That's the big thing. I will say this. There is a chance it shows up somewhere and does something really, really broken, but we'll see. Yeah, it's going like, to need we'll some mana engine around it. Yeah, exactly. Like, one of the main reasons, you know, Yogg Will is really scary is, like, when they go, Yogg Will, okay, play my Black Lotus from my graveyard. And you're like, oh, God, that's scary, you know, kind of thing. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to our underrated cards. And uh, the one that I chose, it's kind of a pet card. It's a card that I like a lot. Um, I think it's really cool, and there's a chance that it shows up in a few decks as a sideboard card or a main deck card in Modern uh, already. Like, I think that there's some decks that could, that could play this card. I think it's pretty cool. It's also a pretty sweet commander card, too. So people, if you're a commander fan, you might already own this. And that's Titiana, the Protector of Argoth. This is a 5-3 three for 3 green-green. It's a legendary creature. It's an elemental. So we see a lot of elementals in this set, by the way, if you have an elemental deck. But... um. When she enters the battlefield, you return target land card from your graveyard to the battlefield. And she has another line of text that says, Whenever a land you control is put into the graveyard from the battlefield, create a 5-3 green elemental creature token. Um, I think this card has a chance to show up in some of like you know the mid-rangey green decks or like possibly in like a titan deck, something along those lines where anything with a bunch of fetch lands or stuff to do in certain matchups, this is a card that... It dodges a, a decent bit of the removal. It still dies to lightning bolt, but you can get the you can get the stuff you know the the value from it right away. And in modern, this is one of those cards where if you cast this with a fetch land in play and you have a fetch land in your graveyard, like you're killing your opponent in the next turn. It adds so much power to the board so quickly, and now you need multiple removal spells to kind of deal with everything. Uh, this is a card that. I think the chances of it showing up and being super impactful are pretty low, right? But I still think this card is really cool and really powerful, and I don't want it to be completely overlooked because I do think the effect it can have on a game is quite large. Yeah, I think this card has significant potential in the sort of fair Primeval Titan decks that have fallen or off Omnath since decks. Yeah, si yeah, since uh, since Field of the Dead was banned, they've fallen off because that was kind of their end game. And now you can you know, use this as a really good end game card as a good target for Eladomri's Call because those decks often play that. It, uh, I've also seen Aspiring Spike try to make it work uh, with what he's called the, sp the Splinter Triplets. It is Titania, Zurin Orb, and Urza Saga. I was say, getting back Urza Saga is one that I have on my yeah. list, too. And then, and then you find Zurin Orb, and then you make a, a million tokens with it. Uh, you know, you can sack Flagstones with the Zurin Orb, too, and, and double up that way. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is just a good a good value card. So it's a very solid role player to me. I expect it to see play from time to time in Modern. I don't think it's ever going to be an all-star, but I think this is a card that you're going to see more often than you expected it to, expected to see because it is very good in its role. Like This card is an all-star in like its they, role. It's like when they cast... It's like when they cast like Hornet Queen or something. You're like, oh yeah, like that card exists, yeah. you know, kind of and thing. It, you know, it's, so. it's like a modern power level Hornet Queen. You just create this huge battlefield, yeah, there you go. and this one actually ends the game. My underrated is one. I'm really surprised. I don't think I've seen anyone even like mention this card is in the set, and I think it is going to be an absolute staple of the format as a sideboard card. And that is Seal of Cleansing. Like people have played Disenchanted yeah, I, I Modern like for a long yeah. time. Yeah, I actually like Seal of Cleansing and Seal of Removal both. Like, I think they're going to show up somewhere, be played, and, like like you said, either sideboard cards and, like, pretty impactful sideboard cards at the time, too, especially if, like, your deck gets any kind of value on it being an enchantment. Yeah, you can, you know, uh, yeah, those, like, Enchantress decks, there's, uh, or there could be, but the big thing is, like, it's obviously just great with Luris. Like, if you yep. need a disenchant effect in your Luris deck, 
this is a really fucking good one. Uh, yeah, it's like know, dead weight, you know, like we've seen in the past get played along yeah. with Luris, you know, something like that, yeah. I, I think this is also a card that those fair Primeval Titan decks, which are often Selesnya colored, are going to want access to, because it's a card that you can cast, and now you have pr- a proactive answer to Blood Moon. You cast mm-hmm. this on turn two, and your opponent's looking at their Blood Moon, and they're just sad, You don't, yeah, even if you don't have point. any basics. So you don't you don't have to mess up your mana base in order to make sure you're, you've played around Blood Moon. Your answer just comes down, and now you're insulated. So... There's so many places where this card is better than Disenchant, uh, and especially with Luris, especially against Blood Moon, that I just expect this card to see a lot of play. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, like now we have a lot of diverse answers to these things that Disenchants aren't quite as uh, played as they were, but there, you still see Disenchant quite a bit in modern sideboards, and this is just mm-hmm. a, generally a better Disenchant. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I like everything you said there. Uh, I did want to like take a second to mention a few of the cards that like didn't make the list because like you said like we said at the beginning of the show this was this set was very difficult I think for top eights and there's a lot of really really good cards you know like I didn't even have Charlotte's Agent on my top eight and like I you know I think that there is a chance that card you know does some stuff in modern I've never been a big fan of the um, electro dominance uh, what's the blue enchantment um, that lets them cast the card um, um, as foretold. Yeah, as for total, I've never been a big fan of those decks. They feel kind of glass cannony to me, but like, you know, you know, this is a card that helps out those kinds of decks. You know, so like, I think it's a what thing was that's the bigger. what was the card that you had on your list that I didn't have? I think it's your seventh card. Uh, unmarked grave. Yeah, there we go. So that yeah. was our like you had unmarked grave. I had Shirtless agent, and the other seven we agreed on, which is I'm yeah. honestly kind of surprising in a deck in a set this deep. But yeah. if you look at our you know the top five or six of all of our lists, it's all very cheap cards. So mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. th- there's a theme going on here. Yeah, and like cards of mine that you know almost made the list. I wouldn't be surprised to see cards like this show up. Um, the three planeswalkers, honestly, like all three of them, I could see. If like Esper Control is good enough, I can see Esper Control playing like one copy of Dakin is just like a you know a good card at almost all times and rate. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this one. It's uh, Gaydrone Daihata or whatever the the, the Grixis Planeswalker looks miserable to play against in certain matchups, and then Grist does some really really cool stuff. Right? Grist and is a really card that abusable. I've been I was impressed with when I played it on versus. I played it against a control deck where I think it's it shines the most. Um, but I, I accompanied into it, which is great. I was hoping to have at one point unearth it, which is also really sweet, uh, but it generated a lot of value against control. But even more importantly, it gave me a good answer to to, to Teferi in a deck that was yeah. like just generating yeah. one ones. I mean, big Teferi here. Like, you know, I was gr- I was able to grind through the counter spells and the cryptic commands and, and, and all of that stuff. But, you know, usually when you're grinding with just making a bunch of one ones and keeping you, you just keep coming, keep coming with all those crappy one ones and make their removal mm-hmm. bad. Eventually, they find a spot to land a planeswalker, and you just don't have the power on the battlefield yeah. to answer it. But Grist it gave me a way to just say, "Yeah, I have four answers in my deck for those Teferis, and they're repeatable. If you're not answering my Grist, and I can bring them back, I can hit them off of company. So I'm going to find them consistently. So it was really, really good for me in control matchups. I'm not sure how good it's going to be." In you know like prowess matchups where three mana plus yeah. make a one one doesn't seem like it's going to be yeah. effective. Makes sense. Um, two reprints into modern. You know you mentioned one of them, Fire Ice and Vindicate. I think are both cards that you know you possibly see show up because they fit a very specific role 
and like fire ice not casting you know you being able to have it in your deck you know around yeah. cascade and stuff is big or, or pitch it to two different to uh incarnations or have it be a red mm-hmm. removal spell that pitches to force mm-hmm. of negation it's yeah. those little things that fire ice does that I, that I think are going to be good I have had this card in my deck in Legacy before because it was a forked bolt that could pitch to Force of Will. And it killed Deathrite Shaman, it killed Delver of Secrets, you know, it killed uh, Young Pyromancer plus a token. Like, there was a lot of reasons to like this card. Um, another card that pops up, a couple of other ones, Master of Death is a card I've seen people talk about in, like, Vintage in other decks, you know, possibly uh, jumping up. That, that For everybody at home, that's one blue, black, three, one. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you surveil two, and it says the beginning of your upkeep. If Master of Death is in your graveyard, you may pay one life. If you do, return it to your hand. So lots of cool things you could do there. Solitary confinement is in is in this uh, is thing, but there's you know better versions of that card you can do there. Um, I know you and I talked a little bit about Zoo getting a couple cards. Uh, the two that stood out to me was Territorial Kavu and uh, Scion of Draco. Or two of the ones. Uh, I was going to say, I don't know if we need to read those. You know, people, if they're really interested, can go in and read them off. But those are two cards that could show up. I'm I'm a little skeptical on both of them. But if they fill the right role, I can see both of them. People are trying it, you know? Yeah. Um, my, my thing with them, where I think they are, is I don't think that domain deck is going to be the traditional, like, domain, zoo, one drops, burn spells, beat down deck. I think it's more, it's going to act more like a Niv-Mizzet deck. That's a little bit more aggressive, uh, but those creatures can play some defense. But especially Scion is just a card that is difficult to answer because it's four toughness doesn't get pushed. Uh, so that, that I think you got to try to pick a lane, and I'm not sure they fit in. The, Kavu fits in the aggressive lane just fine, but Scion really doesn't. Um, so I'm not sure how. I don't think they play that well together, unfortunately. Uh, which sort of keep which which means that they're the potential of both is limited. Uh, so that's why they they didn't make the list, but yeah, definitely some potential there. Any, anything else you wanted to? Any other specific card you wanted to speak on? There's a yeah. few more, but two, like two cards know. I wanted to talk about, and they sort of go together because I think they bolster a specific archetype in a, in a certain way, and that is Solitude, which is the white. There are incarnations, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. They all, and then Esper Sentinel. So mm-hmm. uh, Solitude, yeah. the uh, the white incarnation is three white white three two flash lifelink. When enters the battlefield, exile up to one other target creature. That creature's controller gains life equal to its power. Evoke, exile a white card from your hand. And then Esper Sentinel is a one white for a one one human soldier artifact creature and says whenever an opponent casts their first non creature spell each turn, draw a card unless that player pays X for X is Esper Sentinel's power. Uh, so, sort of a nod to Ristic Study, which is a commander staple, but now attached to a creature and a creature with a lot of relevant types. It's a human, it's an artifact, so you can put it in artifact decks to develop synergies. You can put it in modern humans, where like pumping it with a Thalia's Lieutenant ensures that you're going to get that card advantage. Uh, I think it goes very well in modern humans. Uh, but I think both of these cards in particular elevate taxes decks. We saw these yes. decks briefly when Skyclave Apparition joined the format and it really made waves. They've since since subsided, and the thing I want to say about them is I think the future of the archetype is not uh, as a Leon and Arbiter deck. I think the key to unlocking the deck's potential is getting away from Leon and Arbiter, which has always been a bad card that limited your own deck building by too much in order to be worth it. And at this point, the deck has a ton of good interaction between Solitude, Path, and uh, Skyclave Apparition, and it has other good disruptive creatures and it can play as a Yorian deck, which goes really well with Aether Vial. And now you can splash a color and get a lot of different, you know, uh, other um, 
uh, tools, you can go into blue and play uh, Rishid and Dockhand and lean more into Mana Dial. You can go into red and get Imperial Recruiter and have a bit of a, a toolbox. Sanctum Prelate, uh, that should be another card I bring up as an honorable mention that goes really well into these decks, is another tool that they get. So I think you can be dis- still at just as disruptive as you were without having to butcher your own mana base and play this crappy 2-mana 2-2. And, of course, you have the Stoneforge Mystic Package, which didn't go well with Arbiter to begin with. I think these decks are going to be good now. I think they have a critical mass of tools, but I think it's going to take people who play these art decks realizing that maybe the card that they like the most and kind of the card that is most associated with the archetype, right? Like, when you think of modern death and taxes, that's the first card that comes to your mind. It certainly is for me. But I actually think it's the worst card in the deck, has been for a while, and if you want to play your deck and have success, you should get away from it, and you really can. You know, Esper Sentinel is a good one-drop, uh, you know, along with uh, with um, uh, Giver of Runes. If you go red, you could play Raghavan if you wanted to. I think that would be fine. You could play Lightning Bolt along with it. You know, there's plenty of toolboxy cards to get with Imperial Recruiter. Like I said, Dockhand and Blue. I'm not sure if you, um, you know, you could play, go green and play Noble Hierarch and, and do whatever you want. You can, you can basically play any two-color combination you want w- without, um, without uh, Arbiter. Maybe you can even go into three colors, but I'm not sure that's necessary. And I like to get some more utility lands in the deck, different ones that aren't Ghost Quarter. But I think this deck now has really a, a good amount of tools. Solitude in particular, a, a really good one because later in the game it generates card advantage, but it also stops you from getting run over while you set up your you know set up your defenses. It's a great card to blink with Flicker Wisp. Like I, I can imagine you know ev- uh, evoking Solitude and then violating a Flicker Wisp with the trigger on the stack, getting your two creatures without spending a single mana. You know you're tapped out on their turn and have a vial on three. You are threatening to put two six power onto the battlefield and exile two creatures. Notably, Solitude also can exile your creatures if you just really need to gain life against Burn or against Prowess for just that one turn, if you have that option. So both cards are just, you know, contributing towards this deck getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, because it's it's been knocking on the door recently uh, post-Skyclave Apparition, and I think we've I think we've reached critical I mass. Agree. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think I've been mentioning it on the show a lot of times recently that I thought this is something that happened. And overall, I'm actually a huge fan of this set. I think that this is more what they wanted to do with Modern Horizons, and they maybe like a little more failed on Modern Horizons one. Where I think like obviously you're getting broken cards in the set, right? And a couple cards that might get banned. They're too broken, but like they're not going to be the only playable cards out of this set, right? Like it felt like most of the playable cards out of Modern Horizons one are banned, or should have maybe be been banned. Got other things banned, right? And I think we're going to have a little more of a even effect out of this one does that make if that makes sense you get what i'm trying to say there that yeah like it's yeah gonna have a, a more yeah. egalitarian sure i would have exactly that's exactly the word i was thinking of anyway um i mean the, and here's another testament there's so many cards we didn't even mention you know we barely mentioned like imperial recruiter like you're talking yeah. about and that's another card that riptide have a lab effect. yeah and riptide lab like all kinds of cards that are, you know, very important and could show up in decks in modern have big effect. But, you know, we're talking a lot about some of the cool new stuff. So I love this set. I think it's great. Uh, I really want to draft it a bunch. And we're going to have a lot more to talk about this in some of the rest of the shows. But uh, I want to talk about a few more things before we leave. We actually did have a mailbag submission this week. And it's from something that you tweeted, actually, earlier this week. And you get to kind of expound upon it. And I think that's great because I actually agree with you here when it comes to this. And this is from Lee McLeod, one of my, uh, one of my personal favorite. 
listeners as we as uh, uh, as well. Yeah. He says, "Why?" I know, why I know they say you're not supposed to play favorites, but we do, and Lee is very much near the top or at the top of yeah. both of our lists. Yeah, I actually work with Lee every now and then too, and he's a absolutely he's an absolute delight. All right, so Lee asks, "Why are Pathways the best executed dual land cycle in the history of Magic? No love for Shocklands." Um. Ooh. Well, I, any lands that have the the land types have created issues. Uh, but that's mainly the issue with with fetch lands. So, uh, like my my perception of original duels and shock lands, and you know even battle lands gets uh, you know unfairly skewed by the fact that they've always existed, or, or not original duel lands, but the, uh, the rest of them have always existed with with fetch lands and even original duels for most of their life, because we're you know well more than uh, about twenty years since the first fetch lands were printed in onslaught. Uh, so, you know, maybe, I, maybe I, I would think differently if I saw them in formats with, without fetch lands, I guess that the shocklands do exist in pioneer, uh, but there is still an issue. If shocklands are like the premier, uh, lands in your format, you have that issue of just taking a ton of damage pathways provide, you know, they provide untapped mana of either color early, which is key for aggressive decks. They provide fixing for control decks. They don't enable too degenerate of spell bases. You know, I, I think the canonical example here was Vivid Lands and Reflecting Pool and Filter Lands back in Shadow More Eventide days when people were playing Cloud Thresher, Cruel Ultimatum, Cryptic Command, and Austere Command all in the same deck. And that should just never really happen. Um, mm-hmm. So I, mean, I played that deck a lot. Yeah, the mana base was a joke. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think these lands enable anything degenerate when it comes to hitting your colors they don't you know create this unnecessary push towards aggressive decks by costing you life but they still provide good mana fixing they still allow you to play two and three color decks they allow they work well in both control and aggressive decks and i don't think they necessarily favor one over the other the way something like temples do so there's just a lot of little things about them that i really really enjoy um and so, I've you know very much enjoyed playing with them. I never feel like they're just you know that they're too good or that they suck the way I think with Port Town. Uh, it, it, a lot of it is based on just my experience with them, but they also just avoid a lot of the pitfalls. Like you know you could talk about how Shocklands and Duelands are are colored by the fact that they exist with Fetchlands and the problem is Fetchlands, but you know there's a lot of design space where you know those Shocklands end up bleeding over into with things like Valakit and you know letting your Valakit deck play a ton of colors, which is kind of against the spirit of Valakit, right? Or enabling uh, other synergies based based on basic land types. So I think the pathways are a power. They're powerful lands. They provide good mana fixing. They don't favor uh, mid range and control decks over aggressive decks the way a lot of ETB tap lands do. Uh, you know they give you access to your mana, let you curve out, which is just important for the experience of Magic and they they i don't think they do anything to restrict your design space like if pathways exist in my standard format in my whatever format does that mean that i should be wary of printing any other kinds of cards i think any anything anytime you're infringing on that space you you know that, that's at least slightly problematic it doesn't mean that you can't do it or you can't do it in a powerful way but the fact that you have to restrict yourself moving forward is a negative and I don't think pathways have any of that. The only negative pathways really have is that they're awkward to take out of a sleeve and flip around. 
right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like right? that's my yeah. biggest negative when I'm playing with pathways, and it was actually kind of a pain when we were playing with with playtest cards on versus live because they would print both of them, and so it was two two uh, things, and so we couldn't put both inside the sleeve. It, it was too thick, right? And so we'd have to keep the one the back side off to the side and have the front side. And it's it, without the images on everything and the colors, it's not as easy to figure out exactly which one you need. So it was a bit of a pain, particularly for Versus Live. Uh, but once we got real real versions of them, like they're just a delight. Yeah, and like the few things that I could add to that, honestly, like that's actually one of the the small things that I've enjoyed about not being able to play Magic during the last year of like COVID is like that and not having to reveal my companions, like the little extra mechanical things that are added to Magic that I think a lot of us would either forget or, uh, you know, take advantage, not take advantage of, uh, take for granted and how easy it is to play Magic cards when you don't have to flip them. The thing that I want to say about that you didn't, that, that, uh, that's different than what you said is I like, Honestly, I like how genius it is for the flip lands because the shock lands, like while being super iconic, right? It's really lazy. They literally just reprinted these cards and made you shock yourself, right? And that's why they're called shock lands. And like they needed to reprint duels, right? Like, you know, for what Magic was doing, they wanted to have, you know, dual lands and Ravnica. It fit the storyline. Like they yeah. needed to have these cards, right? And that was around and the time sense. Dual Lands were rotating out of Extended, too. So for competitive play, like yeah. they needed Dual Lands and Extended to make that yeah, format they, they, work. Say, they needed these cards, so this makes sense to have you know these cards printed. It's kind of a lazy way of like, you know, like like how long do you think it, it, it took them to balance these? Probably like just a few days, right? Of like chatting about it, and someone's like, yeah, how about we just tack this on there? And they're like, yep, golden, sounds great. You know, test it out to anybody, whatever. But when you look at these flip lands. I think they're like extremely elegant and well done in all ways because it's like a very simplistic design. And when you see it, you're like, yeah, this just makes sense, right? Like I have a, you know, if I'm playing a green white deck, I have a couple lands in my deck that are either a forest or a plains, but don't count as that. So I don't get to like abuse it kind of thing. And I just like the simplicity uh, and I like the simplicity of it overall, but I like like how it's, it's good enough. Like when you play them, you're like, yeah, these are good, but they're not broken. Like you feel with the dual lands sometimes. Yeah, they're at a you very know, appropriate. Really power get to level. abuse. Yeah, I think they're very appropriate power level. And, and it's it's really the difference between both or either. The difference between and and or, right? And and, and is a lot more powerful than or. And with with shock lands and dual lands, you get both, and it makes it a lot easier to cast. You know, green green cards in your Naya deck uh, and things like that. And. Uh, you know, I like when there's a cost to doing stuff like that. I think you should, you know, be required to be disciplined in your mana base if you're going to be playing a lot of colors, and it creates a deck building challenge uh, to, you know, not only build a mana base that makes you consistent, but also like ensure that you can solve your problems while staying within the restrictions that are imposed by the, your choice of colors. So, um, you know, a huge difference there. I just love the way you put it too. Like if I thought about it for more than a couple of minutes and like how I wanted to word it, I would actually, the way I would word it. Cause I agree with you is like, this is the best executed dual land cycle of all time. Yeah. Like it's, it's, executed that was my tweet by them. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like that's, <laughs> that's why I love the way you did it because you put it into the, like, that's literally like how I would want to word yeah. it kind of thing. And I think, um, I think I have a good way of explaining my point earlier about when I was talking about not putting the fault of the duels and shocks entirely on fetch lands, even though I think a lot of it, probably even the majority of it yes. relies relies yeah. on fetch lands uh, or lies with the fetch lands is any time that you allow lands 
to do something other than make mana. And I, when I say do something other, I mean that in the most general sense possible. Yeah, be I relevant. Mean, have a type other than land. Have a t- uh, like you know have an ability other than tap for a single color of mana. Uh, you know anything else. You know and and you run the risk of developing synergies to a really powerful way. Which is again not to say that you can't do it, but you have to be careful when you do it. Because lands are supposed to be sort of dead car- dead slots in your deck, right? Not necessarily dead, but like you know, there that you know, there's that tension is the, the center of magic. It's what makes ma- makes magic good. When you're able to get additional density of whatever effect or ability you need to make your deck synergies run out of your land slots, then you you enter degeneracy territory. That's what happened back in the day with Affinity. They had so many artifact lands, so they had their deck, their Affinity deck had you know, 45 artifacts in it, 50 artifacts in it. And that was too many. It made their deck incredibly consistent and incredibly powerful in it. And, you know, that density of artifact lands was the primary reason, uh, in addition to just having, you know, gener- powerful payoffs for, for doing it. Then, you know, the, the same thing has happened with Shocklands and now with Death Shadow. You know, like people have found ways now to take advantage of their lands dealing them damage. Fetch lands do it by putting a card in the graveyard or triggering landfall. Or, and putting a card in the graveyard has it multiple ways, whether it's delirium or delve or you know threshold or any number of, of mechanics, right? Or rebuying lands with Renin Six. All of those synergies, like fetch lands, are the worst cards ever. Um, but any yeah, they're up there. Yeah. yeah, any kind, any of those kinds of synergies, you get rid of. Uh, you know, like you, you run the risk of you know, issues developing. And it becomes especially true when it's part of a land cycle because those are lands that are meant to be staples of your format, staples of your environment, and it means that you have a lot of them. So even if you need to put them in the, the lands that are not the right color into your deck, you can play them because they have that ability. You know, the Affinity decks back in the day played Dark Citadel and they would play an off-color artifact land. You know, I always had a, you know, you always had the blue, black, and red ones because those were, your spells were blue, black, and red. Disciple of the Vault, Shrapnel Blast, and Thoughtcast. But, you, you know, sometimes you would, you would play either the white one or the green one based on sideboard cards, or you would at least, you would always play one of them, and then you'd have your, you know, Glimmer Voids and and, uh, and whatnot, uh, just because you needed artifact lands. So uh, these lands are the, I think, the canonical ideal of a dual land, because they're not both, they're or. You know, I think that's what, that's what a dual land should be. It is either of them, it is not both of them, because both becomes, you know, a, a, just too powerful a fixing. Uh, and they are lands that never have abilities other than tap for a single color of mana. Yep. They're just perfect. I think it's just, yeah, it's just perfect. Um, speaking of perfect, this is this is something really cool that we've mentioned before on the show. I hadn't really followed up on this. And uh, if you're a Patreon of the show, I think we talked about this like a few months ago. We have some of our, uh, our, our what's, what's the right word here? Our, our Patreon perks coming out in the mail. We talked about how like, we had this playmat, you know, coming out for people, and uh, I am happy to announce that the first like leg of them going out, you know, to the to our longest patrons, has happened. They are in the mail. So by the time you listen to this, I I think there might be a chance it shows up at your door if you're one of those people, or it'll be uh you know the checks in the mail like you know the, the saying or whatever. So um and then you know the next ones will come out as soon as we possibly can. We're getting these out as quickly as possible. Um, you know we can only do so many at a time. Uh, kind of thing, but 
I'd just like to take a special moment and, you know, say thank you to everybody that's, especially if you've, you know, if you've been here since day one, you've, you've been supporting the cast in any way that you can. I'd like to say a very special thank you to you. And, you know, this is another way that we're doing that. You know, we, we have, still we don't like you coming. as much as Lee, but we like you quite a bit. You're higher up on the list for sure. And paying yeah. us is, is a way to make us like you even more. That's you know, very true. Also great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I forget that they can't see us because I do not have a straight face saying this. Obviously for you at home that's listening and you cannot support anyway like on patreon um patreon you can't you know support us monetarily just listen to us every week like you do that's fine that's great we really highly appreciate that too and we love y'all all evenly that's more than fine that is excellent and so like that's not the only cool patron announcement there's a second one and ross you have a little something coming for the people in the patreon section yeah and i think i'm gonna turn this into into a regular thing because this is gonna help yeah, I'm gonna help. yeah. This is something I do whenever a set comes out. Is you know I'm always brewing decks during preview season for versus live and for articles and things like that. And I end up yeah. keeping them always in a, in a single Google Doc yeah. for and any not given all of preview them make season. It into articles and not all of them make yeah. it onto shows. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, for for various reasons. You know, sometimes it's a single uh, deck based around a single card, and I don't have more homes for that card, so it doesn't really fit yeah. entire doesn't fill out an entire article. Sometimes, you know, there's only so many decks I can play on versus live, and I just have more than fit into those spots. Sometimes it's a really experimental deck that I just don't really think is going to work, but I think there's a nugget of something there. Uh, Ross, just tell them what you're doing. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to, you know, I've got this for Modern Horizons. I've got a whole, you know, do- uh, Google Doc of deck lists, and I'm going to take all the ones that haven't made it into content, uh, and I'm going to put them all in- into, a, you know, I'm going to, you know, write them all up nice and I'm going to write, you know, a short blurb about each one of them, different cards to try, the genesis of the deck, you know, all that stuff that you'd expect to see. Let's effectively turn it into a smorgasbord article of the leftover deck lists. And I'm going to be posting that into the Patreon channel in our Discord for all of y'all to peruse. Uh, so that is going to be coming in the, in the next couple days, honestly, actually, we're recording this on a Thursday. Uh, my plan is to do it tomorrow and Friday because I'm going to have some time, like Friday afternoon. Time this is up. Yeah, so so it'll probably be on. there when this is up. So if you're listening to this now, uh, you could become a, a – I don't know. like, well, If you become a patron and join the, the Discord and, and get access to that channel, do you get to see all the previous posts? I don't know about all the previous posts, but like I would assume so, and well, I would assume if, well, if not, we could just repost. Yeah, it. I'll figure out how to make it work. You'll get access to it if you join Patreon specifically for that purpose. You know, let somebody know. We'll we'll figure it out. I'm sure Brent knows what to do. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 actually the brains behind everything. There's a reason why he's got a giant head. He's also got a giant brain, and he's the reason why we sound so good on this show too. So uh, shout outs to Brent. He's also uh, the main person behind the uh the play mat so another huge shout out to brent just just crushing it behind the scenes of the show and honestly i don't know where we'd be if we didn't have brent also don't know where i would be if we didn't have barrister and man uh helping us out on the show and being a great sponsor for the show as well i know i'd be much hairier and way matter about my uh yeah my upkeep of my beard i know but, that for sure yeah. our skin would be worse and our general demeanor would be grumpier which i know you don't yeah, think is absolutely. possible but i assure you yeah. i have a lot more space to grow on the grump meter yeah i know no one at home can see me but ross can see my beautiful face right now and i actually got a haircut yesterday and used a bunch of my barrister and man products to help you know trim my beard uh you know make the shaving because like here's the thing I hated shaving and just didn't do it for like the longest time. I would just use a trimmer. And now I actually just make, I I use a razor again all the time. And their products have made that uh, easier and better in a lot of ways. You know, my skin is healthier. My shave is better. It's, it's just smoother. 
And the, the, the aftershave balm is one of my favorite products because I was never really good about, you know, doing aftershave because a, it smells really bad in my opinion. Like I'm not a big fan of it. And B, I didn't like the feeling of it afterwards, you know, like that sting or whatever. And neither of these are problems with the aftershave balm from Bear Man. So make sure you check out their website. Lots of cool stuff. They're way more items than the ones we're talking about and lots of cool gifts and stuff for you to take as well. And make sure you use the code MTGRANTS for 15% off of your order. So that more than uh, covers your shipping and handling. So make sure you check out their stuff. Let them know that we sent you. And uh, yeah, just do yourself a favor. Just get a little, to use a word that Ross was using earlier, it's a big fan, I'm a big fan of, peruse their website. Check out their wares, you know? If you've got coin, they've got wares. So uh, make sure you check out. But uh, this episode's already gone pretty long. Uh, I think I'm going to call it here. Look for us next week to be... Possibly talking about some sweet decks and decks yeah. ideas that have come out of this, this format. This is going to be that have hit and missed so far. This is going to be the first weekend where people are playing the cards on Magic Online, and we're going to mm-hmm. see you know what cards are early leaders and which cards fall mm-hmm. flat. So that's going to be uh, the yeah. focus of next week's show. Absolutely. So we'll definitely see you all then. Thanks for listening, and uh, check us out next week. <laughs>